I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What's code 14J? Where did you hear that? The phone rang, I picked it up, a voice kept repeating code 14J. We need to get to the other house. It's easier to fortify and we'll have better position on the tree lines. What are you talking about? They're here. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recap stock of the season four episode nine the shape of things to come i'm josh wiggler we'll be joined here by mike bloom in just a second he just like ominously walked behind this secret door in the apartment so i'm just kind of uh he, he didn't really say where he's going just sort of left to be here oh All right, josh oh All he's right. back he's back as, as soon as the geico ad read is done we gotta run okay uh, well, that's going to be a, in about 10 minutes. Uh, and so at that point, you think we should go forth into the jungle? Yeah, let's just go make for the tree line and uh, let's go. Because you know what, Josh? If there is a shape of the shape of things to come, it's pear. Things have gone pear-shaped. It's gone pear-shaped. Oh, my God. I always loved that phrase. Uh, it's gone pear-shaped. But I don't think that it's it quite fits. Because if something's gone pear-shaped, I think I want to go towards it, right? Like, I want to take a big bite. Well, I think it depends on, you know, first off, uh, what do you, what's sort of the, the connection to the idea of a pear shape? You know, I guess mm-hmm. the assumption is that things went like kind of wide and bulbousy and out of control, like the Bulbasaur. way the powers up. Yeah, maybe, uh, which sort of, I mean, probably grows a pear on his back once he fully evolves. Do you think Bulbasaur I, is a producer of pears? Hmm. I mean, I think that in the Certainly Pokemon Certainly Bulbasaur is coming pears. There, there are definitely Pokemon, I think, who are able to produce. I'm just like, kidding. They're loners by nature, I think. No, I don't. I'm pretty sure when Ash found his Bulbasaur that he was at the Pokemon daycare with a bunch of other Bulbasaur. That he Bulbasaur got just always struck Bulbasaur. me as he didn't really want to hang out with anybody. No, that was Charmander because Charmander became rather oh, Charmander. Right? Yeah, Charmander uh, really got into his feelings. Yeah, He was like the too cool for school guy of like, yeah, I'm the fully evolved Pokemon Ash. What's what going on it? right now? Huh? Like, how did we get here? 
Especially because this is an episode that is freaking awesome. I can't believe we've derailed it immediately by going into Gen 1 Pokemon talk. Josh, we're talking about the shape of things to come. Yeah, but currently we're talking about pears, and they pair quite well with meat uh, to just continue the through line from uh, (laughs) Kevin Johnson. Oh, yeah. Luckily, uh, Kevin Johnson is not on this episode, but his meat is certainly found right here. Actually, a lot of meat to go around because a lot of dead bodies in this episode. So, you know, I I was getting ready to watch the shape of things to come today, Mike. And I was settling in and I was like, in my memory, this is one of my favorite episodes. In my Agreed. memory, like the shape of things to come is just like uh, from from start to finish, just like uh, like a like a bullet out of the chamber. It's just like it it fires off. It's ready to go and it never stops. It's like kind of relentless. Um, and I remember this morning, like walking into it being like, man, I really hope it holds up. Um, I know I've been a little down on the show the last like week or two. And like, I'm, you know, no, no questions that we'll have a great time on the podcast no matter what. But I was like a little nervous going into it. Um, I don't know why. This is a very easy 4.2 for me. Um, I mean, agreed. This is, I mean, if only because the constant just happens to be in this season and that is an incredible episode of television. This would be maybe the best episode of the season. Oh, definitively the best episode of the season. As much as I love There's No Place Like Home. The finale is crazy, though. It is crazy. The finale is crazy, but this is next level. And yeah. it's, cons- it's constrained to 42 minutes. This is a seminal episode of Loss, especially when you look at where the show is going to be going. Again, we've had this built up the past several episodes. Charles Widmore is the big bad. This guy that's pissing during an art auction is actually going to become the person that we fear most on Loss moving forward. And this fully cements that uh, between, you know, setting up the Ben versus Widmore dynamic, making it that explicit to show that, Yes, indeed, the threats that Ben has been throwing out to these castaways since the end of the season three finale have now come to fruition. Several characters have been gunned down. We get one of the most brutal scenes in Lost history, and definitely, I think, one of the most remembered of season four, period. And it's also just a distinct change in tone. I I know that we say this a lot about the season finale, but I think we get a really big glimpse here, Josh, in The Shape of Things to Come of Lost the action movie, not just on island, but off island, when we have, like, Ben becoming Jason Bourne. Yeah, and Saeed being along for the ride there. It's just such a shift in pace, and I'm not talking about the bloody rock god, uh, even if Claire still is. Um, But you can feel the momentum shift in a really big way um you know from from that clip that we heard at the top of the this episode uh the look on ben's face uh when he gets that news about uh code 14j or whatever uh mm-hmm. like it like it just like changes and it's it's such a fascinating scene because like there's ben quiet alone Playing the piano in his, you said you know, Ben it, Quiet, and that made me think of Parks and Rec. By the way, he, Ben Quiet is a funny idea. Uh, he's he's just there, he's playing, and then suddenly his world is rocked, and it's never the same. Like that's his last mm-hmm. peaceful moment, probably for the rest of his life, uh, before everything goes pear shaped, uh, as it were. Uh, so it's it's really it's really amazing. There are some funny things that I caught this time around that I never really spent much time thinking about, but like. How they go from Ben's house back to to Locke's house, which I guess mm-hmm. is technically Ben's house, uh, and they go back there. They're walking back, and they never stop to like shout at everybody else, like, 
hey, we've got a situation. They really just let the gawkers die, oh, pretty uh, much. Yeah. There, there is, like, I think, honestly, the funniest part of this episode, it's really dark, but honestly, this scene where all, like, these gawkers get taken get back out, in like, the house, one right after. Hey, what's going yeah, on? Get back inside! Blap! No, like, go back in the house! It's, it's honestly something out of a Zucker Abrams and Zucker's movie. Like, couldn't you imagine a gag from Airplane where people keep walking out one it's, at a time yeah, and getting it's, killed? It's a little slapsticky, but, like, uh, the, the just like the propulsive quality of the show in this episode, it's really it's really wild. It's very it it really is relentless. The Alex scene is like a is halfway into the episode, like that mm-hmm. tells you, and it's it's particularly impressive, and I think it's as strong as it is. Um, in no small part thanks to like, um, there is there is just a lot of energy pent up behind the scenes mm-hmm. because if meet Kevin Johnson. Uh, was the final episode produced, uh, was the final script produced before the writer's strike and there were no alterations that were able to be made. And that was the last one they could film before the writer's strike's resolution. This was the first one that they were able to, uh, fire off coming back. Uh, and now they've bought that they've got themselves into a situation. Well, they didn't get themselves into a situation. The situation is thus. The situation is that they thought that they had like probably like two or three or whatever more episodes than, right. than they actually had. And so they really had to like, hit the ground running. They have so many complicated things. They need to figure out a way to get all these people who are spread across the island together or at mm-hmm. least off the island and find some way to plausibly do that. It's really complicated. It's really hard. They actually make the job harder for themselves in many ways, it seems like, as the season progresses. But this episode has the momentum and the energy of a writer's room that has not been able to write. And so now they can. And so now they do. And what they deliver is this insane episode that is just like such an easy 4.2. I don't care about Jack's appendix or whatever. We can talk about Uh, that next week. It's, it's, it's a fun it's a fun segue and, but even in the Jack stuff I would argue has its own merit because this I is a, it's a spiraling moment for Jack as well when we talk about the, the paths of the leader of the others and the leader of 815 from back at the end of season 3 that sort of manifests itself here and with both of these guys their world comes crumbling down and not only is Jack suffering physically trying to smile through the pain but he now has official confirmation that this thing that he was promised everyone would happen may not happen after all. Yeah. Yeah, I think in in terms of the title, the shape of things to come, Lost is going to be brutal. It won't always mm-hmm. be, but we are now in a place where you're not safe in the barracks, you're not safe on the beach. Nowhere is safe anymore. Um, that is the shape of things to come here for... For Locke, things are spiraling out of control. For Ben, things are spiraling out of control. That will be the way of it moving forward for both of those characters. For Jack, things are spiraling out of control despite his best intentions. That will be the way of it for a very long time, at least for Jack. Um, so it really is uh, a mission statement. It's, om- it's almost like a season premiere in its own mm. way. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a it's a mid season premiere essentially. Just given the I way mean, that it literally broke. is. Yes, it literally is that. You know, like they were gone for uh, you know uh, at least a month, I think, if not mm-hmm. a little bit longer, and now they're back and they are here with uh, you know thunderous energy, uh, and it's absolutely great. And I'm really really stoked to to get into all of it. It's just uh, one of one of my favorite episodes uh, of the whole show, certainly of season four before. We get into it, Mike. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. We got to run towards it. We got to thank our friends 
over at Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And it's hard work, but you know what's easy? Bundling with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. Good thing, too. You're busy enough. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Mike Bloom, with that being said, we go forth into the jungle Mm -hmm. to discuss the shape of things to come. And what a dream team. This is a Jack Bender special, and it's written by Brian K. Vaughn and Drew Goddard. That's That's a crazy lineup. He's pulling double duty right now, Brian Kavon, because I do believe he wrote the last episode as well. So again, obviously, a little bit of a break in between, but Brian Kavon essentially wrote the last episode going into the writer's strike and the first episode coming out of it. I can't say I can't speak more highly about Brian Kavon's comic book work. Uh, if if I haven't shouted out uh, Saga enough on here, uh, Saga is just absolutely incredible. Why the Last Man, Ex Machina, deeply, deeply, deeply underrated. Uh, and Drew Goddard is a really incredible talent as well. Uh, he's the he's the man behind the Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Uh, very uh, legendary television veteran. Uh, whether it's Buffy or Alias, uh, you know he's he's absolutely incredible. So like this is really the squad uh this is this is such a good team that they've got assembled for this episode and drew goddard uh you know i think puts a little bit of sydney bristow and ben linus considering a little bit of the spy work that he does off island i do believe that i really love his uh his hot magenta wig that he wears razzle dazzle Uh, yeah i i do believe that drew goddard has said in an interview that this might be his favorite episode that he's ever written so that again high high praise and you know what, uh, Josh? There might be a Brian K. Vaughn uh, Easter egg contained within this episode that we'll get to that I'm very okay. excited to speak about. All right. So I'm excited to hop into this one. Let's get into it. Let's not tally. Let us not waste any further time. Uh, as Benjamin Linus will say later on in this episode, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so are, are we the camel in that? Or the I don't horse? know. I don't know. That's my favorite line. Yeah. When Ben when Ben mounts yeah. the horse, I mean the bad news <laughs> is that looking he around sp- and he just goes, "Yeah." The bad and- news is he can speak English, <laughs> he can speak Turkish, he can speak Arabic. He cannot speak horse, so the horse cannot go faster. You sure about that, Mike? Because he says "Yeah," and then the horse it goes. Yeah, well, the, to be fair though, Ben does have a baton that he is wielding as well. So it I is, don't think he's hitting the horse in that moment, is he? But I, think that, I mean, like if I'm a horse and I'm seeing that baton, I'm like, okay, I'm assuming he wants me to run fast here. Yeah, I think that horse liked Ben because uh, Ben like kills a few people uh, or he kills at least the one guy right in front of the horse. The other horse dips, but this horse is like, whoa, cool. No, that's true. Actually, uh, those that are familiar with the Red Dead Redemption series knows that like if you kill someone in very close proximity to the horse, there's a very good chance that horse gets spooked and runs away. But that horse is that horse is kind of a badass. Just chilling. JC, I want, I want more adventures with Ben and his horse. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I say. That's what I want. I want more yeah. adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go forth. We begin at the beach. We begin with the Jack and Kate scene. This is like the kind of thing where like, I forget that this is part of the shape of things to come. Not yeah. mad at it, but this is obviously the weakest stuff is like Jack's in pain. He's got the appendicitis kicking in. He's taking his pills. It's very mm. cute with him and Kate, which is like, who prescribed you that? It's like, I did, Kate. Shut up. Leave me alone. What? It hurts. 
But it's also a little bit of, again, a sign of the shape of things to come, considering that uh, we're going to get another Jack Flash forward coming up next week. But the last time we saw a Jack Flash forward, he was addicted to pills. He that was he addicted to himself, pills. And now he's, he's popping them. I will say, this is also a very complicated scene that I feel like, again, sets up next week well when we're going to see Jack and Kate trying to make house. Because on Island, the last thing we really encountered with these people was that Juliet had basically told Jack, like, I really care about you to the fact of screw Ben. I'm here to help you. And, you know, they kissed a couple of times and now him and Kate are making kind of goo goo eyes at each other. And, you know, they're, they're making jokes about whether crackers or pills helps with your stomach. So I'm a little confused as to where they want to go with this. It seems like we have two points fixed in this sort of romantic timeline with the Jack and Juliet stuff and the flash forward stuff with Jack and Kate. We're just in the really murky middle where we don't really know how much should be apportioned to one moment over the other. It's not my favorite stuff, but we'll get into that much more next week. I'm cool to just put a pin in that and not really go too deep down that well, because things do get really interesting really quickly. Uh, you know, Jack and Kate are talking about how, like, he's not worried that Said and Desmond aren't back yet. His gut's telling him he gets off the island. Kate's like, what, but isn't your gut sick? And Jack's like, oh, yeah, haha, very funny. And then Bernard is calling for help. And Vincent is barking. And there's a body that has a B-O-D-Y-S has oh, no. surfaced on the beach. And it's a character that we know. It's Dr. Ray. And yet, we have not seen Dr. Ray die. So this is suddenly very jarring. And Mike, this is the shape of things to come in its own way, right? Like this is yeah. the, the the time travel stuff. This is the discrepancy between what happens off island and on island. Um, you know, how are things possibly happening in two different places in two different ways at the same time? Or are they not the same time? So we're starting to already pop the cork. Uh, to use an island metaphor that I know a certain guy really, really likes, who's going to be name checked in this episode. Um, that we are, we are already like kicking down the door on time travel a little bit, knowing uh, at this point the writers very clearly are, are clued into the fact like this is what we're going to do, uh, starting mm-hmm. next season in a big way. Well, not only that, but I think it's also an indicator of what we've sort of been hinting at this entire time, even starting with the flash forward at the end of Through the Looking Glass, which is the world off island is distinctly different from on island in many ways that in fact on island might be more normal than off island considering that off island michael can't die saeed's an assassin there's a bunch of time differences that are now spanning like days upon days when it was you know over two hours initially or whatever uh and it's it's a big sign as well i think of the danger that's to come as well because Kimi as a concept really was an alligator for the first eight episodes of this. And not just because he was camouflaged that way, but he was sort of this beast that was lying in wait, sans for skeeting off the deck last episode. Yeah. And now he finally gets to snap, and we don't know yet that he's the one to cut Dr. Ray's throat. But I think even if we don't realize that in this episode, by the end of it, we have a clear indication that this guy, who always seemed a little off is incredibly dangerous, arguably even more dangerous than Benjamin Linus himself, who has a quote-unquote rule book to go by. This guy does not. And the fact that this, even the doctor 
consider maybe one of the most uh, valuable people on the freighter besides Captain Galt is dead, that yeah. says something. It's not good. It's dangerous. So it's like the shape of things to come it's with time dangerous. travel. It's the shape of things to come with uh, the rest of the season with just a few episodes left beyond this point. Um, let's go to the barracks. Uh, yes. One one last moment of... Uh, I like this, this is like the last pleasant <laughs> island moment for a while, I feel like. Uh, let's listen in. We're all going to die. Calm down, Chicken Little. Sky ain't falling just yet. This is exactly what he wants. To fight amongst ourselves. You're making a big mistake, dude. It's his to make, Hugo. Let's get on with it. Right. I'm attacking Siberia. <laughs> Sorry. Can't believe you're just giving him Australia. Australia's the key to the whole game. Says you. I love this so much. It's a red herring. So good. I mean, it's Australia is not the key to anything. I don't know. Australia is where they all got on the flight, so I think it's it's pretty. It's key. where we met. It's where we all met. The church is in Australia. Richard Malkin's hanging out there too. <laughs> you know how important of a character he is. A hub is located there. This was one of the most dissected lines, though. Was like Australia's mm-hmm. key to the whole game. Says you, and that's actually funny in hindsight. Because Hurley's sort of like the audience surrogate. So this is like a very meta moment where Hurley's saying, Australia's the key to like unsolving the mythology. And Sawyer, who is often like sort of Carlton Cuse's mouthpiece because he was his favorite character to write, is being like, that's you say. We might have a different idea about that. Uh, So there's kind of this interesting meta thing that's going on there with that with that exchange. I love the scene as well. I think the scene's so great. It's such. It's also a great. It's a little weird, here. Mike, that Locke is constantly playing board games during this time. Have you noticed board this? games? John Locke can't get over the boards games. He's just like constantly playing stuff. He's like, I don't know what to do. Uh, well, checkers. I don't know. Let's look back though on Deus Ex Machina when he used to work at a toy store showing off Mousetrap. I think that is sort of like his place of comfort. To your point of like, oh, I thought well, you I were going to say it's like sort of the thing where it's like it's Pavlovian. He sees a board <laughs> game and he can't help but play. Yeah, I mean, that sounds very relatable. Uh, but I, I could imagine, though, that maybe John Locke is a certain part of him of, okay, I need to make them happy. When was I making people happy when I was selling toys? Okay, I know my way around board games. Everyone break out the Parcheesi. This reminds me so much, and I don't know if this is purposeful or not, of the golf storyline in Solitary, specifically that one scene with Jack and Michael talking really intensely about what their next move is, and it, it turns out they're just going for the five iron to make the putt. It's a, it's a very similar type of echoes of, again, subverting our expectations. It's great in retrospect as well, given that this is, to your point, uh, a moment of intensity that is an actual moment of levity, but is the last moment of levity for quite some time, given how dramatic things are going to get very soon. But it's also, again, maybe, uh, maybe just entirely coincidental, but Solitary introduces the character of Danielle Rousseau, and in the episode where her daughter dies, we get a very similar type of scene. Yeah. Uh, so things do escalate as soon as right now. Because uh, we go and we see in the jungle, Kimi with the crew and with Alex. And they have her turn off the sonar fence. But she, uh, in turning it off, also activates a code. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why the phone rings in Ben's house. Code 14J. Uh, they go to Ben. He's playing piano. 
Yeah, and he's the piano man. Uh, much like we, I, I believe that's the same room <laughs> that Jack was uh, playing. Yeah, that's Jack's for. house for sure. But I, I will also say all the kudos in the world to Tanya Raymond uh, because she plays terrified so freaking well. Even just starting here, when the you you know we don't even know that it's Kimi at first. Like all the mercs are faceless. We only get them from the waist down, and Alex is just you know thrown down the entire time, showing how they look down on her, and she is like pleading with them already like please don't do this don't kill the baby and they are just merciless to her and again that's the shape of things to come they're going to be much more merciless to alex later on but right here at the beginning i I really want to shout out tanya raymond and what's going to end up being her final episode as a corporeal person in the main timeline of lost yeah it's tough it's really really harsh uh so she calls the phone rings 14j they go to ben and yeah, it's this moment where like he snaps from playing the piano and things are good to suddenly things are the bad. Very, very much I, so. I love the gun in the piano bench. I don't know why that feels very like old west to me, like the play- piano player at the Was saloon. Jack just- sitting on like a sawed off shotgun this entire time? And he didn't even realize it. Yeah. That's how brainwashed they had him. Uh, but yeah, it does feel very old west. You're absolutely right. I mean, well, there is sort of like this uh like uh like you know final stand it's high noon kind of quality to the episode like there is a little bit of that western vibe yeah a little bit of like the defending the alamo right mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's like our last stand we're Go holding the basement, down the barracks ben, the, he goes to the basement that's what's in the basement of the alamo is the smoke monster you know so it's it's cool the the way it goes and i just love how everyone reacts where like ben uh, like instantly goes in, gets the shotgun. Everyone's like, "Whoa!" Uh, and he holds it out to Sawyer, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like no time for for BS. They're here. Uh, like everyone's reaction to that is uh, is is really really incredible. And so, like even like right before we cut to to the to the credits to the title, um, the the episode has now like rocketed off in a way that it's not going to be able to come back from. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like it sets the vibe, it sets the tone in this really uh, exquisite way. It's just like the energy behind it is just like I don't know. It's a like you're you're at the edge of your seat pretty early on in this one. It's just what the constant is for like sort of like the big sweeping romantic epic. This really is as far as like Lost's like pulpy action thriller uh you know um and not even like i feel like that's sort of like delegitimizing some of the emotional stakes of this episode because this is one where like really heavy stuff happens to a couple of different characters um but there is sort of just like this like almost like horror movie vibe action horror um just like sort of like i don't know like this feels like uh, like a you could imagine this in like a mission impossible movie type of Mm. quality to it except except tom cruise would like run out there, ride the smoke monster to his own stunts and kill <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely has you on the edge of your seat or even edge of the piano bench because, again, this is something that Ben has been talking about for so long. And I think much like the rest of 815, we sort of tatted off as, yeah, Ben's just flapping his gums. They're really not going to come and kill them. And then, you know, the the sort of speculated becomes real. They are here and there is no hiding. And the scary thing about this as well is, is to your point, Locke's group formed specifically to avoid these people, yeah. right? They said, we're not going to to get on the freighter because we take Charlie's message. We believed Ghost Tall Walt. We want to stay away from them. It doesn't matter where you go and hide. These people want to come and find you, especially when you have Benjamin Linus. And it's the ultimate tragedy, right? Is that more people 
die who end up going with Locke than who end up going with Jack. And that's because, ironically enough, they said, okay, we're safer with Locke because he wants to avoid these people. There's no avoiding them. When their mission is to take Benjamin Linus and then exterminate the rest of the island. Yeah, it gets real bad really, really, really fast. All right, so we leave, and when we come back, we're in the future, but you're, like, really disoriented. You uh, really so don't much so know. That you're throwing up bile. Uh-huh, yeah, like, it's very disorienting. The sound design is really compelling here, um, where it's just sort of like it pops you into the moment, and, like, you're bursting to life alongside Benjamin Linus. And so, like, we will see what brought him to this moment later on in the season, but it is, like, this big, very satisfying mystery because it has a resolution so quickly of, like, how did he get here? Well, it turns out he spun a frozen donkey wheel and moved through time and space. Yeah, hmm. and, and there's and there's some Chekhov stuff, right? Uh, there's the Edgar Hallowax jacket that he's going to wear. There's the tear on it even from when the, the ladder tears at it. Uh, so, you know, it, it, we, we get those signs as to directly say, yes, this is where Ben goes. Though I think we'll talk a little bit about the timey-wiminess of it all. Uh, but I mean, I just love, 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 love the stark image of Ben lying there in a desert. Because again, that shows how far away we are from the island. I don't know if we necessarily need the lower third uh, that we're in the Sahara Desert. I guess maybe they use them throughout the flashbacks, so they're keeping to a pattern. I think you could pretty easily tell we are not on the island anymore, uh, considering what Ben is wearing. And this I guess I, I like it insofar as it's like, he like looks like he just got like dropped here. What's he doing here? Mm-hmm. How did he get here? He's wearing a jacket from the island. He's got this wound on his arm. Yeah, he's wearing a parka. And because we've seen uh, through the Charlotte stuff, like the Tunisia connection, right? With the polar Mm -hmm. bear... Like oh, that's is, my that's my favorite uh, Gene Hackman movie. Mm-hmm. It's just getting you wondering, right? Of like how, like what is this connection? So it's just sort of like advancing the ball on that mystery. Um, and I think it's like setting up all these other really cool little mini mysteries of like how did he get here? What happened to his arm? Why is he wearing a parka in the desert? And if he's coming from the island, why was he wearing a parka on the island? Uh, so there's just like a, a couple of questions that are built into it. And then also uh, we get introduced to the like his his secret weapon, right? Like his beating stick. Uh, and so it's like, how did he get that too in this moment is kind of fun. Yeah, and, and we'll get much more of that later on when he gets to wield it some more. And we saw this a bit in Every Man for Himself. But Ben's baton really gets it, its coming out party here. Coming quite out literally. party. Exactly. When these two Bedouins show up on horseback, Ben also shows off, you know, there's a reason why he has a drawer, drawer full of all these fake IDs, right? He knows English. He knows Arabic. He knows Turkish. He's a regular Rosetta Stone. And then when they, you know, fail to respond to his prompts, Michael Emerson pulls out this baton and whoops this guy's ass. And it the, is the face he makes too, and he's just like being like, okay, okay, all right, okay. Yeah. It's just it's so great. Because again, you can't imagine bug-eyed, creepy Michael Emerson ever being an action hero, right? But this is like his time to do so. He he ends up really whooping butt with just this one thing. And this is the Brian K. Vaughn connection, Josh, because apparently the telescopic baton that Ben has is an homage to his character of Agent 355 in Why the Last Man. 
I don't remember her having the baton, but it's been like a literal at least decade since I read Why the Last Man. Um, I got to go back and check that out. They've been, I mean, listen, you'll have a reason to considering what's coming to FX on Hulu uh, at some I was, point. I was going to say that they're making the TV show finally, and I'm really hyped for it eventually. But yeah, it hasn't happened yet. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, so he beats up the guy. Uh, then he shoots the other guy and then he knocks out the one dude. Uh, and then he uh, he hops on his horse and he says, yeah. I mean, it's it's also pretty badass, though. Again, he's like he's cut his arm. He just what grabs like a f- scrap of fabric. Yeah, I think it is worth like just like like nuts and bolting this a little bit. Yeah. Benjamin Linus in this moment. Let's chronicle what's going on with him. <laughs> um, he has within the last like week to two to three weeks at most. Uh, has had a tumor removed from his spine, Mm -hmm. has recovered from the surgery, uh, has been beaten mercilessly by Mm -hmm. multiple people, Mm -hmm. has watched his daughter die in front of him in no small part thanks to his own actions, has then traveled through time and space to get to this moment in Tunisia all while having like uh, like skewered his arm on like a rusty right. spoke, uh, and all of that happens, and in like the instant the instant aftermath of traveling through time and space, he pukes his guts out, and then still has the ability and the gumption to uh, to to kill one guy and subdue another, and then mount a horse and ride through the Sahara Desert to get back to civilization. Yeah, Incredible. indeed. Yeah, indeed. And I have just live here on the podcast talked myself into giving Benjamin Linus an MVP point for this episode. I mean, I think Uh, that makes sense. Look, I think there's a reason to give him an LVP point, which we'll get into. But I think there's also a reason to make this a wash. This is a big this is a big one of those instances of like when you're so bad at being good, like just like the the operational effectiveness of Benjamin Linus in this moment is actually crazy. Yeah, especially since, again, like you said, he is probably the most disoriented he's been in his life. He has left the island multiple times in the past, but this is the first time he's ever turned the wheel and got ejected from now in what is an incredibly heartbreaking moment for him, as we'll get into a few episodes. Also to mention, like, he still has a bit of bloodlust as well. Let's remember that he just killed Kimi a short time ago for killing Alex and possibly blowing up the freighter in the process. So there's a lot going on in the mind of Benjamin Linus. It's crazy what he's able to do here. Uh, Like, just like this one, this could be the only scene of Ben in the episode and he would be worthy of an MVP point. It's crazy what he's able to get into here. And all he does is he just takes a scrap from the guy that he killed, like very courteously takes the gun, saddles up and rides on off Lawrence of Arabia style that it's it's absolutely bananas that he takes literally three seconds to compose himself. And then as soon as you see those Bedouins ride in, he says, "Okay, game face on. It's time to get back to work. And maybe that also shows how motivated Ben is that as soon as Alex dies, he has like a new mission in mind, especially when he leaves the island. Maybe he's motivated by that to just be an absolute badass. I mean, screw Jason Bourne. I think Ben is uh, is really built going the full John Wick in his off island stuff. Yeah, I mean, let's just be clear. Uh, both John Wick and Jason Bourne would annihilate Benjamin Linus. I don't uh, know. I don't think ben. it's. I don't think it's close. I don't think it's particularly close. Hand to hand, weapon to weapon, like. 
No way. Uh, Benjamin Linus doesn't get out. I don't think so. I don't (laughs) think so. But it's remarkably impressive. And the other thing, too, is just like sort of keeping tonally with the episode. This is so strange. It's so odd. This scene is really unlike basically anything we've seen on Lost before. Mm -hmm. It's like the action movie version of Desmond waking up covered in paint. Well, and especially because, again, it's coming from a character like Ben, right, who is... Yes, he can command people to do dangerous things, but he is a man of words more than he is a man of action. He His most dangerous body part is his tongue. We don't see that's the case. That yes, when push comes to shove, he can still wield a weapon to beat a man to death. Uh, that just shows how Benjamin Linus is also someone who, despite sort of being on the side of the quote-unquote good guys until the end of the series, is also very dangerous in his own right. Yeah. Deeply so. All right, let's go back to the barracks. Uh, this is where Ben's going to tell... Uh, 14J, that's a warning system. They're here. We're in trouble. How long did you guys wait to debate whether or not you should come get me? I don't know, five minutes? It's like, sweet. Good. I'm glad. Good I'm job, really happy idiots. to hear that, you morons. Exactly. He's like, no, I've been warning you about this. It's interesting that, actually, Sawyer calling Hurley Chicken Little, because that's been Ben this entire season, right? He keeps saying... They're dangerous. They're coming for us. And they say, Ben, it uh, doesn't matter. Shut up. We're not going to kill you, but fine. You can have dinner with us. And now the sky is falling. And Ben's like, well, well, well. Looks like a broken clock is right twice a day, fellas. And it's also really interesting to see the change in hand of leadership, right? You brought this up in the beginning with, with John's questionable choice and activities to, to stay the time away. But this is the episode where Benjamin Linus promptly gets back in charge. This was sort of the, not the long con, but I guess the long game on Ben's part was he was tied up, beaten to a bloody pulp by the end of season three. By the middle of season four, he's living in the barracks, even though John Locke is living in his home. By this point in season four, he has fully become their leader, and he has become the commander of this ragtag group of 815 that's going to try to defend themselves from the mercenaries. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't go exactly according to plan here. He's going to tell everyone, stay close. You're going to need to stay close to me. Sawyer is uh, going to go and find Claire because Claire isn't here. Uh, and I and I love that. But I mm-hmm. also just love how the writers basically decide... That all of the gawkers are not just like going to be like red shirts in the episode, but like aren't even worthy of concern from the rest of 815. And I guess, Mike, I get it. We've been here. We've been along the ride on this journey week to week for the last year and a half, a little bit more than that at this point, Mike. And what have they really done, these gawkers? What have they really done to merit being uh, safe and secure in the central headquarters during this crisis? I'd say not a lot. They really just stood around gawking. (laughs) But I guess the thing is, well, first of all, I think this moment could walk so that the fire arrows could rain down from us at the beginning of next season, right? Which is really, I think, the true cleansing of the gawkers. But now it makes me wonder, Josh, like you say that, but I do wonder what Ronnie Sisto and Billy Wallace would have been doing. You know, would they have joined Locke's group? And if so, would they have made it out of this instance alive? Um, it's a good question. I suspect yes. If anything, Mike, I suspect that Billy and Rodney may have uh, been participating in some Mr. Friendly Fire here. Uh, <laughs> 
got to make them think that we're the mercs. Okay, cover yourself in mud and just start shooting at people you don't like. Yeah, I can imagine Rodney and Billy were with the mercenaries. Uh, One day when Lost is over, I think, is when we will rediscover what those guys are up to. I think that that makes a lot of sense to yeah, me. When we've got nothing but time and right mm-hmm. now though, I think we are on a crash course in terms of time in many yeah, ways. Yeah, I think like let's do let's do the recaps, let's get through the recaps and then let's see what other residual business we have on the other side of this. I think is the way to go. Uh so Sawyer's going to go, he's going to make the time. Uh, much like Daniel Faraday will say, I can make time. I agree with that as well, to your point before. I love the fact that Sawyer does go back for Claire, because not only does that represent how Sawyer is becoming that person that Hurley was building him up to be over the course of uh, you know everything from Left Behind, but also it's going to set up Sawyer sort of being Claire's protector in the next couple of episodes, right? Like he's the one that's going to go out into the jungle when she goes missing, uh, he's the one that's going to try to bring her back into the group, even when she's going off the deep end. So this really sets up this idea of out of Locke's group. Unfortunately, her BFF Kate is there, is not there, and Rousseau is dead. So Sawyer is the next best person to look after her. Um, okay, so back at the beach, Dr. Ray is dead, and Danielle and... Uh, Danielle. Oof, so, <laughs> da- Don't bring it up! Danielle? Uh, Daniel? And Charlotte... Uh, they've got really no idea. They're like he was like totally fine the last time we saw him. Uh, and they're like, when did you last see him? Well, that's kind of uh, time is a relative thing. Yeah, when is kind of a relative relative term? And then Faraday. I mean, I'm gonna say it right here. This is a bad episode for Daniel Faraday because great. he's asked to do the one thing he cannot do, which is lie. He's even a worse liar than Hurley. So then when they say, you know, oh, uh, you know, maybe we should get back on the staff. Well, actually, uh, the mic was smashed. You know, we just get like tonal squelch if we send a message there. Yeah. So he's like, well, you know, maybe we could like jury rig it so that I can uh, Morse code back to the freighter if we look through the salvage. And, and, And Jack is sort of the genius here who's like, hey, Bernard. Can I uh, can I talk to you for a second? How does Jack know that Bernard speaks Morse code? I mean, I feel like this might be something that Bernard just sort of threw. Or maybe Rose told him, you know, maybe it was my husband's in the bathroom. Uh, he knows Morse code, you know, it's just something that she likes to throw out there. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. and he also made the SOS signal. So maybe she's like, oh, Bernard's obsessed with all these military things, the survivalist stuff. He watched so much Bear Grylls before we, we went to Australia. He loves making you know, SOS signals. He knows Morse code by heart. And so that sort of got the wheels turning in Jack's, albeit ill-ridden head, that he feels like despite everything that's happening, much like I think, you know, Sun turned on Juliet a couple of episodes ago, Jack is starting to turn on Charlotte and Daniel after everything that happened, uh, even with uh, the poisonous gas. Jack is becoming less and less trusting with them, especially when Daniel Faraday is really just stammering off all these half-truths. Yeah. Um, anyway, it is a bad look for Faraday. Great look for Bernard. Um, back at good, good look for Kate as well. I think she's sporting a headband. I noticed. Oh yeah, no, she looks fantastic. Uh, back at the barracks, uh, Hurley's got Aaron. Uh, he wants uh, locks his get away from the window. Things are about to get really bad. They put the bookcase down. They're not going to be able to let Sawyer back in. Uh, it's okay because Sawyer's got his hands full, Mike. This is where the gawkers begin to die. Oh my god! It's I mean, three it's, gawkers in a row. Is that right? Yeah. So, so he's standing with one guy who's holding firewood, asking what's going on. He gets picked off. 
Uh, poor fake Patricia Clarkson that I pointed out a few episodes ago runs out, checks on him, gets shot. Another guy runs out. Sawyer can't get a full sentence out to say, watch out before these people get gunned down. And so then Sawyer decides to go like full Call of Duty and just starts throwing himself behind all the cover that he can, just namely several picnic benches. But by the time he gets to Claire's house, it blows up. Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. Absolutely wild that they blew up Claire's house. Again, they showed they were tick took no prisoners. I guess they did take a prisoner literally in the form of Alex, but they're saying like, yeah, let's bring in the RPGs. You know, sure we might blow up some residences here on the island if I love RPGs. We We podcast about RPGs here on post show recaps. No, I thought we were saying those for after the (laughs) No, role playing games. Japanese role playing games like Final Fantasy Seven. Soon to be Final Fantasy Eight. So I guess do you think Kimi would be a good member of Avalanche? Um, no. Maybe a Turk though. Yeah, um, I, think, I think he very much screams Turk. Is not, Cla- not, not, is, not the Turks that uh, that Ben throws off the. Is horse. it Claire? Is Claire inside when the thing blows up? Uh, yeah. So here's the weird thing: is I believe she is. <laughs> she survives, but apparently there's the, there was this weird part of the episode that I guess got cut out, but it was filmed where like Claire has a moment of precognition. And I'm very glad that's an avenue we didn't go down with the character for many reasons, even though I grumble and grouse about what they did with Claire. But I don't know if I would necessarily like hmm. if, if Desmond style. Do you she think that Claire becoming Claire being a pre uh, Claire being a precog is better or worse than what they do with Claire? I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there's some interesting stuff in season six that might get overwritten by the precog, though maybe this would lead to Claire becoming the Jean Grey slash Dark Phoenix of Lost, which would be pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, that would have been pretty sweet. That would have been cool. Imagine, like, the Ajura planes taking off in the finale, and she, like, sacrifices herself by crashing it or something, and then rises from the ashes to defeat the man in black. That'd be pretty wild. Uh, All right, so Claire's house blows up right in front of Sawyer. Uh, And Sawyer is so impressive that he doesn't get shot. Yeah. Uh, these guys get or shocked sh- or shocked. He like flips a table over and like is able to eat. Like it's just crazy. Action hero Sawyer is a great character. Uh, flash forward Tunisia. Ben comes to a hotel. Uh, it's not his first time. It's been no. a minute. And it's interesting because I don't know what we're supposed to glean from the hotel clerk's reaction. Josh, he gives the name Dean Moriarty, which I called back before, but it's a character from Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which is very pertinent given that Ben is on the road right now. He's on the road to Tunisia. But when Ben says I'm a Moriarty also being Sherlock's nemesis. Yes. And actually, uh, I do believe that like there's there's a Sherlock story where Moriarty does something in a way that like Ben does with Saeed right now so again a lot of a lot of connections there but when ben gives the name dean moriarty the clerk looks down and like gives a very intrigued look to him almost a look of fear maybe i'm i'm extrapolating that from her did you make anything of like the way she reacted unless they wrote next to to his name on the ledger like he's a killer don't give him a room yeah i don't know i didn't notice that but um uh, I'm willing to to just like sign off on the fact that like everybody is afraid of Ben. I mean, think about how Ben is described by Whitmore later in the episode. You come in here with your with your bug eyes. You come mm-hmm. come in here like a little rat. Yeah. You know, like I can imagine just like Ben is a very unsettling presence to be around. And I, I'll also speaking of that, I, I did find the connection to the Sherlock case. Uh, apparently, 
there was, uh, I think it's called The Final Problem, a Sherlock Holmes story where Moriarty pays a surprise visit to Sherlock Holmes and confronts him. And they both basically issue ultimatums to each other saying, "Okay, we're always going to be chasing after one another in a very similar regard as the way Ben and Charles Widmore do in the final scene of this episode. Hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's compelling. I think that the connection it's, it's there. Uh, it's, this is text that they're definitely mining from. So uh, well, let's, let's talk about the date here, Josh. Yeah. It Cause is like a- now, you know, he's traveled through time. So he, so this is our first character who we have like seen travel forward through time. Yes. Uh, and, and someone who we know was not part of the Oceanic Six seemingly got to the island completely differently, right? Because apparently if you translate what the Bedouins say when they find Ben is like, oh, he didn't leave a track. It's like he fell out of the sky. So this is clearly very different from the Oceanic Six just sort of getting settled into society via that raft that they find. Uh, so he clearly is very unique here. And it seems like he's touching down at a very different time considering, again, we just celebrated Christmas a few episodes ago. This right. is almost an entire year later. It's a so, flash forward. Well, and I think the question, we got this question from a couple of listeners is like, does the island, I don't know, spin a roulette wheel when the donkey wheel turns and picks the time to send Ben into? Was he hurled immediately a year? Was he just in stasis for a year in that desert and then finally woke up? The annoying answer is, um, no, I think it's sort of like the way that you can like, based on like if you're traveling by air you like you never experience june 24th you know Mm. um he misses all of this time he misses uh he misses from like new year's until now so it's like just a a hell of a layover is what mm -hmm. benjamin linus experiences Uh, i would puke too if i were him you know Yeah, i mean he traveled through like all the time zones instantaneously like why is he in 2005 i think the annoying answer to that it's because he always goes to 2005. Um, you know, he's going to be a participant in recruiting Saeed into his organization mm-hmm. that is going to get Saeed into a position to be recruited by Jack and everybody that he himself is going to go and recruit Jack, that he is going to be instrumental to the process of getting these people to go back to the 1970s, which always happened. So Ben had to be like dropped in this spot. Like, he was always just, like, faded mm. to be dropped in this spot. Well, that's um, interesting, because, yeah, to your point, it seems so... I mean, I don't know how much time had passed between the first Benjamin scene and this scene, where he sees that Nadia's funeral is happening in Iraq. That's clearly, like, a fate thing, right? That Ben had to run into Saeed, that this is his connection back to the Oceanic Six. Could it be that, you know, the powers that be saw when this was happening and said, all right, we're going to drop you like a couple days right before this. It's almost like 112263, right? If you're not going to travel back to the day of the assassination, maybe like a couple months beforehand to really plant your feet in the ground and get yourself settled in for the mission at hand. Right. I think it's something like that, you know, but that's why. And he's here and he sees Saeed on television. And mm-hmm. Saeed is this world famous Oceanic Sixer. Yeah, the paparazzi are up his butt. Yeah, don't get me singing right now. I won't do it. Um, uh, the, <laughs> I was going to do it, but I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm holding back. Season 4 Yeah, Yeah, this is season 4 isn't it? Season 4 Yay! Uh, so Saeed 
uh, is he, I just want to bury my wife. It's like, oh no, oh no. And so this is another episode that's so great because it's it's also even though you don't see him at all on the island, you don't need to because Saeed we know that he's going to be under Ben's employ. That's a big question that's out there. And what was his life like before? And why was he so upset? Well, it's because he got off the island, he found Nadia, and then he lost her for keeps. Yeah, and we now get a lot of stuff filled in as well, right? With all the Elsa stuff of him getting romantically involved. Yes. And we wondered, he left the island. Obviously, he had a lot to go back to in Nadia. What happened and we're not going to see the tragedy until the incident, but obviously we get the blanks filled in here. I just yeah. want to bury my wife in peace. Like, that's all you need to know as to why Saeed is the way he is in, in the, you know, in The Economist flash forward. Yeah, it's very sad if I'm being totally honest about it. Um, back at the barracks, uh, the barricade is uh, intact. They're weathering the shock and awe. Uh, Hurley is concerned because, like, was that Claire's house that just blew up? Because yeah, that's probably a fairly big deal. I mean, true to Hurley, again, he is so caring about Sawyer and Claire specifically. And Ben, and to a lesser extent, Locke, are much more focused on the matter at hand, which I think also speaks towards their sort of tied investment in the island at this point, right? Ben tells Locke even before this, I need you to stay alive because I need you. And we'll find out later that that's because essentially, according to Ben, Locke is the Jacob Whisperer and he needs to talk to him to be able to, you know, help defend the island against what's to come. So they're just sort of like, yeah, who cares about that? Uh, but Hurley is really the voice of reason here to the point where Claire and Sawyer are making their way back. Ben saying, don't open the door, refuses to let them in, and Hurley disobeys orders and tosses an ottoman through the window to let them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's how he's gonna, how he's gonna let them in. Uh, should we be mad at John Locke for not being more aggressive about getting Sawyer and Claire back inside? I'm going to vote yes. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I'm going to vote yes. I'm going to vote that John Locke. I had a moment today, Mike. Okay, tell me about the moment. And I think it's been creeping for a while. Ooh. Oh, who's creeping like a rat, bug-eyed man? I think I'm having to come to terms with the fact that almost no character has had uh, more of a journey of diminishing returns for me on this rewatch than John Locke interesting falling plummeting from the building like john locke is a dick john locke is the leader of these people he said you'll, you'll be safe with me and he's not like automatically gonna let claire and sawyer in he's not gonna automatically let these people in he's also really cruel to ben later in the, i'm sorry about your daughter but you lied to me like not I mean, now, man. To, to be fair, he's the only one who did, does give condolences to Ben. Everyone else is starkly silent. I mean, though, I will say yes, but something you say often about John Locke is that he is a flawed character. I know. And so, like, you almost have to appreciate him for the fact that he is not a good leader. Here, I think it shows how genuinely shell-shocked he is. I think John Locke has been has been really hard to like for me in the last little while of this rewatch. It's it's been very compelling to me and I've been feeling it internally and this episode kind of made that 
pour over, pour over to a certain extent. It cleared out my pores. Well, I mean, let's also look at the fact that we are also nearing the time. Obviously, I love him. I love him. It's like one of those things where it's like, I love you, but I don't like you right now. Like, I I love John Locke, but I don't like him very much right now. And it's, it's been wearing on me for a little while. Well, we're nearing the end of John Locke, though, mm-hmm. right? We've yeah. talked about this before with Jin and Son that he's going to have cabin fever, which I think is sort of like the last go around for John Locke before everything with Jeremy Bentham. But it's been a weird arc for him, right? We talked about how he disappears for a good portion of season three, has a little bit of a bump in the finale, but doesn't appear nearly as much as other characters. Here, he he takes this big stand, but as we'll see, he'll sort of get usurped by Ben, and I think for the rest of the season kind of serves as, like, Ben's lackey to help him through that stuff. I I think here, I personally don't know if we should dig in on him that much, because it's almost like the scorpion and the frog. Like, this is to be expected of John Locke. If you give him a choice between protect the island or protect people, he's going to protect the island. I know. No it's matter just, what. It's just upsetting. It's been upsetting. I've been, I've been feeling... A little upset about it. It just sort of boiled over with uh, with this one. So the Sawyer comes back. He's got Claire. Also, Ben is telling Locke, uh, we need to get out of here. We need to survive. Also, we need to make sure that Hurley survives because he knows how to get to Jacob. I don't. Right. Exactly. Like, hey, let's get all the Jacob uh, adjacent people together so that we can all sort of make a think tank if you will and approach Jacob because this is going to be the biggest ask I'm ever going to make of him. Yeah, we're going to have to talk to Jacob. Uh, so Sawyer is in. Hurley pulls him in. Just another example of Hurley being the true leader of the show, where he's like, I'm not going to. And there's a better example even later on in the episode, I feel like, where Hurley's like, enough of this nonsense. We're not leaving Sawyer and Claire outside while buildings are exploding. Yeah, exactly. Or well, even later on, right, when he's like, stop pointing guns at each other, people. I'll go with them. That's the thing. It's yeah. fine. I'll yes. find my way back. But we should also mention that. You know, as this is happening, Sawyer particularly is irate at Ben. He is very much going to be team give Ben up. Yeah, he wants to like, just like throw him through the window, you know, right, well, and listen, have has, like the window make the, the wet hot American the, summer sound. Oh, yeah. If only he's been on the receiving end of that baton. Like he knows that that Ben can be a callous person. Why not give him away, give him away, give him away now. But they're going to be interrupted by the very courteous doorbell ring. And it turns out that Miles has escaped <laughs> yeah. because the his fellow freighter people freed him, they, like, but they released him. Yeah, yeah. They basically, but they're basically just to use him as a messenger, holding his own walkie-talkie. Yeah, so he's got the walkie-talkie. They want to talk. Uh, so and they want to th- walk. At this point, now Miles is like uh, going to be like attached to Sawyer at the hip for like most of the rest of the show. Yeah. I think. I mean, you, we're going to hear this later on, right? When he's like, "You want to go back to your people?" And, and Miles says, "Hell no!" I mean, that's basically his declaration of, "I'm sticking with eight one five until the end of the series." Yeah, more or less. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So flash forward time. We're in Tikrit, Iraq. Uh, the funeral march for Nadia. And Ben is there. He's going to like take photos from the rooftop. Uh, Saeed's going to catch him taking the photos. I feel like I should give Saeed an MVP point for this because he's I mean, yeah, able those to, are some eagle eyes. Yeah, his uh, with those eagle eyes. Uh, he just like his Linus radar is uh, is incredible. But too many MVP points to give out this week. I don't think that I can spare it, unfortunately. Um, but it is still rather impressive. And it's also impressive that he is able to track Ben down. Let's listen in. You vultures! You follow me to Tikrit! You spy on me! What are you doing here? I'm here to find the man who murdered your wife. How did you get here? I came across the Syrian border. It's really not as difficult. How as you did you get have... off the island? Your friend Desmond had a boat. Remember the Elizabeth? I followed a heading to Fiji. Then I chartered a plane. Why now? You remember the name Charles Widmore, don't you? The man who tried to convince the world that your plane was on the bottom of the ocean? What does it have to do with me? With Nadia? There was a man at her procession. He was by the name of Ishmael Bakir. He's one of Wilbur's men. Bakir was last seen five days ago in Los Angeles. Caught by a traffic camera speeding away from the corner of La Brea and Santa Monica. That's three blocks from where Nadia was killed. Why would these people want to murder her? I don't know. But they did. I know it's so rough and it's really rough that like we we don't get to ever enjoy Saeed and Nadia being together. Yep. Um, Because there will be like the really beautiful reunion between the two of them eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's short lived within that same sprawling three hour finale. She'll die. Yep. Uh, And so now like you know that they got back together but she died. She was killed. Yeah, it's it's brutal. You could tell how heartbroken Said is, particularly in Navy and Andrew's delivery of He's like so why, good. Would, why would He's they want so, to kill her? Yeah, why would they kill Nadia? It's so sad. Especially because again, he thought, much like a lot of these people, that their lives were done with the island. 
when they left it. And we talked about this with Michael, that the island has a way of connecting with you even after you leave it. And it happens in a very tragic way here. Let's talk about the Ben Lai that he's, he claims, I just followed the heading that Desmond gave and then chartered a plane to Fiji. Why do you think he lied specifically about the art of moving the island and escaping it the way that he I did? I don't know. You know, he's still a man of many secrets. He doesn't want to give everything up. And I think also probably, like, that's less believable than Ben telling Saeed effectively a version of, like, what happened to Saeed. That's true. I mean, uh, Saeed is the man who has said, I won't believe it until I see it. And so I Saeed think- has escaped by, you know, I don't, I don't remember if they went to Fiji or, or wherever, but like, I think that like the way that Ben is describing getting off the island makes a measure of sense, at least compared to what he could tell him had actually happened, maybe a little bit of a harder pill to swallow. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I guess Saeed is sort of like the man of reason out of this group. I guess the other question is, so was Ben intending to recruit Saeed here? Was, th- was this a con? We'll talk later on in, in the second scene they have about Ben, I think, playing a bit wise with being, you know, playing hard to get, almost doing some reverse psychology of, oh, no, you should leave. You don't want to get involved in this. Do you think Ben specifically sought out Saeed here, hoping to recruit him to kill Ishmael Bakir? Hmm. Yeah. Right, I think that's the whole reason he's here. I think, like, Ben is looking for a friend. Ben's looking for a partner in crime. He has seen, he has seen Saeed's uh, actions firsthand. Ben has whatever resources are currently at his disposal, but his operation is still going to be, like, fairly bootstrap compared to the Widmore apparatus. Um, but with Saeed... He's buying into not only like an incredibly skilled assassin who could probably take down an army well financed, but he is well financed. He can travel anywhere. He's got the oceanic pass. He's got the settlement money. Um, Saeed's a catch. Saeed's a first round draft pick as far as this goes. Um, he's got the face and the name recognition, which is a little bit challenging, but he's still Saeed Jarrah. Uh, he's the person that you want on your side in this moment. And I think Ben feels like he can, as he often does, uh, manipulate somebody into this moment of, from this moment of grief into being an extraordinary passenger on this ride, especially because he feels that he can, he could channel what side's feeling in a big yep. way. Yeah. Cause he's exactly. going through it himself right now. He knows what it's like very recently to any, any acted upon it as well, right? To have this feeling of you killed the, the person who I care mo- the most about in this world. And so I will kill you as well. He can directly empathize with Saeed. And I think it's to that point that he says this would be a good person. I mean, I think to that effort, if it was just Saeed, a news report about Saeed getting into the car, I don't know how much Ben would, would look into it. I do wonder when he hears Saeed say, I just want to bury my wife in peace and he gets the major catch up. Is Ben like, ding, 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 ding. This is someone I can very much emotionally manipulate into doing things for me. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. It makes a ton of sense to me. Anyway, so that team is brewing. Meanwhile, back at the barracks, Ben's got the walkie. Uh, there's six of them outside. Ben's wondering, why do they want to talk to me? And Miles says, well, they've got a hostage. It's your daughter. 
Yeah, and there's some really there's some really interesting body language from Ben here, right? Because first off, he's he's doing some denial. Uh, he's saying, you know, they miscalculated. You know, every single person on this island would die for me, would die for our people. So you know what? They're not. I'm. They're, I'm not going to give myself up that easily. He also throws in a nice little piece of shade towards Miles by talking about. I guess you're not going to get your money. And then as soon as he mentions Ben's daughter, Ben stops and finally looks at Miles for the first time almost regarding him finally as, as like an actual serious thing in the room. Once he knows that he has Alex, the game has changed in so many ways. And it's going to lead into sound number three, which I am playing in total. It's a, it's a little long. In you, toto. Yeah, but you can't, you can't cut anything out here. Kimi's going to kill Alex. It's brutal. S- strap in, folks. It's it happening. Is this is like the anti-constant. Absolutely. It's the variable, except not the episode, the variable. Uh, So be sure to check it out. Hello. Am I speaking to Benjamin Linus? That's right. My name is Martin Kimi. I'm an employee of Charles Widmore. Charles Widmore. Leader. I'd like you to go look out your east window so we can talk about this face to face. Yeah, I see. All right, Mr. Linus, these are my terms. You're going to step out the front door, put your hands above your head, and you're going to walk straight to me. Once I have you in my custody, and I promise you that no one else in that house will be harmed. You and I both know that once you have me, there's nothing to stop you from killing everybody else on this island. What kind of guy do you think I am? Martin Christopher Kimi, former first sergeant, United States Marine Corps, served with distinction from 1996 to 2001. But since then, you've worked with a number of mercenary organizations, specifically in Uganda. So I know exactly what kind of man you are, Mr. Kimi, and we can dispense with the formalities. Okay, Ben. You got it. Get your ass out here right now. Or I'm going to kill your daughter. I'd like to present a counter-proposal. I'm listening. You and your friends, you turn around, walk back to your helicopter. You fly away and forget you ever heard of this island. have this under control. Everything's going to be okay. Please, Daddy. Please, please. 
You have 10 seconds, Ben. Okay, listen. Nine. She's not my daughter. Eight. I stole her as a baby from an insane woman. She's a pawn, nothing more. She means nothing to me. <laughs> I'm not coming out of this house. So if you want to kill her, go ahead and do it. floor she did she's she dead. dead and okay so there's there's so much to get into with this scene but i, I want to stole her from an insane woman that is, is one of the such, last things that he says to his daughter line. is yeah her final moments her. her final moments on earth are horrible horrible yeah. Like, so and, sad. And imagine going to, knowing that as well that obviously ben means the complete opposite he's using this as a tactic but that's the very last thing she hears before he puts a bullet in her brain. Yeah, well, this is what happens like every time you if you try to game the the, the system every single time, eventually it's going to explode and it explodes here. He finds the one thing he can't manipulate um, and he plays the whole thing really poorly. Uh, yeah. You know, he he tips his hand that he knows who Kimi is like he's trying to do this as a power flex. But if he really does know the extent of Kimi, then he probably should know that it is well within Kimi's character to kill Alex. What what Ben is doing is he's leaning on this nebulous, enigmatic rule, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to say he changed the rules yeah, is the what gold, he's going to say. The golden rule apparently among these two guys is essentially like, do what you want to family doesn't get involved and like that's my interpretation of it as well at the time and for much of lost there's this big question of like what's the rules they can't kill each other they're not allowed to they're not allowed to kill alex and penny like that's just like it's like there's some sort of mystical thing preventing them from there are literal mystical magical rules and i think like the further away you get from lost and then you evaluate it in its entirety, you know that, like, that's not really necessarily the thing. And what it really probably is, is what you're saying is, like, this effect of, like, gentleman's agreement. Yeah. That uh, that Widmore has the vast amount of the resources. He's got the insane corporation. He's got that wealth. He's got that world renown. Ben has wealth as well, but he, more importantly, has the island. And Charles Widmore would like it back. He'd like to come back. And Ben probably leaves the island and goes to taunt Charles because he's a terrible person. Uh, but in this sort of like horrible, evil, both of them are terrible Professor X and Magneto situation, they've mutually agreed, mutually assured destruction. If one of them attacks the other's family, it's just going to be a total loss. Let's not mm-hmm. do it. And I think like in terms of the rules changing, I don't think it's like Widmore told Kimi like, kill his family but kimi probably isn't like fully read in on this no or kimi, kimi is kimi doesn't know what the rule is kimi has been told whatever you do don't kill his daughter this is kimi he's a he's a soldier who knows who you know he did some work in the congo which uh probably involved like its own bloodiness to it he knows okay if i need to get a w here i better do it by any means this guy's, a, this guy's a scumbag mercenary monster you know so and so in his mind he thinks that like well, if I kill Ben's daughter, 
then like that's gonna that's gonna shut him down so thoroughly that eventually we'll just be able to storm the gates and there's gonna be nothing he can do about it. I actually think maybe that tactically, just forgiving like the the horror of it, but I do think maybe tactically this was a terrible choice. Uh, that Alex is uh, Kimi's leverage here to kill her in front of him. Like, is that really the right move in, in addition to being despicable and monstrous? Um, I think maybe not, uh, especially because we know what Ben is going to do. And like in, in the same way that Ben underestimates Kimi, it's like Kimi underestimating Ben, that Ben will have the wherewithal <laughs> to process his daughter's death for like a solid 30 seconds to a minute before standing upright and being like, all right, BRB AFK going to go summon the smoke monster. Now Um, summoning smoke monster. Hope this works. And it does. Uh, And so Kimi gets the shit kicked out of him. And many of the people in his group do as well. Um, But 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 that's the fun part of it, right? It's again, in this battle between Widmore and Ben, or in this instance, the avatar of Widmore and Kimi, it's it's not one side conquers all. It's everyone chipping away at one another that Kimi kills Alex, but then Ben gets the smoke monster to take out a bunch of Kimi's mercenaries so that the war is still properly fed for the next three seasons. I have to give it up to all three performers in this scene because they play their parts to like a master class. Uh, Michael Emerson really being too big for his britches here, right? By By claiming that, okay... I know exactly who you are. Him basically saying, all right, here's my counter proposal. Kiss my ass. Go home. Uh, was a nice little fun, like Benjamin Linus on his high horse moment. Yeah. And then obviously yeah. when Alex gets shot, it is like the game changing moment for him as a character because he finally lost. Yes, he did lost. Uh, he did lose in lost when Jack beats him up and he makes the call, but like nothing has actually happened there yet. He has requested. Don't make that call. But Jack did, and nothing has happened yet. This has resulted in him being wrong about Kimi's call and the person he loves most in this world paying the price for it. I will also say, finally, welcome to the club, Martin Christopher Kimi, you know, finally becoming the Kimi I think we know and love. Kevin Durant plays this so well. He has gone full sicko. He's almost like smiling the entire time while it's happening. There's almost a look that he gives at a certain point like, oh, this sick mother effer. What is this guy talking about? And then there's just the complete, I wouldn't say badassness to it, but it's certainly a moment, right, that he just flat out shoots Alex and then just looks at Ben and then just walks off like it's nothing. And that's I think that's more so the message is, yes, maybe from a tactical perspective, you want to keep Alex as long as you do to, to ha- have been actually trying to make a negotiation. But I think in that moment, Kimi is making a statement of like, nobody's safe, including yourself. I'll kill anyone it takes to get to you. Yeah, and I'm going reg- to regard it like I just killed the chicken that John Locke killed five episodes ago. One of the things that's great about the scene is sort of like the way Kimi shifts. Because uh, mm-hmm. he starts off, he Kimi is both good cop and bad cop in this scene. Yeah, well, especially when Ben said, when Ben dispenses with the formalities, so does Kimi, right? He starts calling Ben like, by okay, his first ben. name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, like, okay, all right. You want <laughs> you want to talk about what I did? Well, why don't we talk about what I'm going to do? You know, um, it's ter- it's terrifying, and it, it is like 
this big announcement of this guy who's gone from just like shooting targets to shooting people to shooting a character that you know to shooting the bad guy's family in front of the bad guy is a very very big move it is really upsetting it this is this is more shocking than what happens to Carl what happens to yep. Russo yep. Uh, which is kind of incredible because they're already dead. And so you should be at this point, like prepared to lose more. But I know at least in the real time for me, it was like, I spent some time, like I spent none of that time thinking about, well, Alex is also in, in terrible danger. Um, I kind of just figured it would resolve itself. And so the fact that it happens in the middle of the episode, it happened so suddenly. Happened yeah, so in, randomly. in the middle of a sentence. He, he's yes. like going on about it. Like, oh, yes. go ahead. You won't. You won't. Yes. And then he does. And he, he starts the countdown. And mm-hmm. then you shift to Ben. And the show very wisely doesn't let you hear the countdown anymore. But you know that yeah. the countdown had been started. Are they doing the Wayne's World thing where the, he's like silently counting while flashing his fingers? I think it's I think it's a really smart artistic decision to keep that from us. Because you you the clock starts, but you're not there. You're with Ben. And you're with Ben with him. And like the music is swelling. And you think that he's going to buy Alex out of it. Or some other deus ex machina, not the episode, is going to come through and save her. Um, but it doesn't. But you have like... You have not even like given yourself the moment to process that like what happens when the clock strikes zero because you're not even hearing the clock anymore. So yep. the fact that she, the, like the gun just pops out of nowhere, you know, even though it's like very fair play with the countdown, you know, it just pops out of nowhere. And Ben's entire gambit is is shot to sunshine, as he'd like to say. Uh, the whole thing connects in this way that is that is deeply upsetting, but like really immaculately crafted. And if it was just this scene in the shape of things to come, Dianu. Um, but like it's not. This whole episode is insane. Um, yeah. but this moment within the episode is just utterly ridiculous, heartbreaking, brilliantly conceived, really, really, really terrible and chilling and awful to behold. But also just like sort of like exceptional story craft. Yeah, well, even just film craft in general, from a cinematography perspective, what I noticed this time around is the entire first half of the conversation, when the formalities are still up, we are viewing Kimi the way Ben does, through a window, right? There's a pane of glass of safety that is keeping the two of them separate. As soon as the formalities drop and Kimi pulls out that, okay, Ben, now we finally get shots of Kimi standing outside without the window. And I feel like that's very symbolic in that there was sort of like this uh this wall between them of safety, the bulletproof Whoa! glass. Oh, if only. Uh he was there last episode. But I guess there was a, this bulletproof glass between them in a way when they were sort of just politely regarding one another as equals. And then they bring that wall down and it leaves them open in the line of fire. And I got to give it up to the third party in this as well, because I think what makes this scene is Tanya Raymond. Uh, Her just like desperation. This is a pretty fearless character, as was shown throughout season three when she was doing all this stuff uh, to help Kate and Sawyer. She is terrified. She is calling Ben daddy, which she never has before. I'm assuming she is like pleading with him. That's what makes this even worse. Right. It's it's not just that Alex got killed out of nowhere. No, Alex was pleading with Ben, do this, please 
save my life. I don't want to die. Please, Daddy, you've done so much for me. Why stop now? But Ben responds with, don't worry. I've got everything under control. And then there's a moment as, you know, Ben goes on this monologue and Kimi loads the gun. There's a moment when Alex starts crying. And I don't know if it's in response to him loading the gun and that becoming uh, abundantly clear that he aims to kill her. Whether it's Ben saying that comment that we mentioned before, she's a pawn, nothing more, she means nothing to me, or both. But the final moments of Alex's life are incredibly tragic. I would say maybe some of the most tragic circumstances a character does have in Lost in their final moments in life. Because even someone like Charlie awful. has, has you know, his, his he gets joy. closure. In yeah. a way, yeah, there is no closure here. It's all open-ended. And it's, it's awful. gutting. It's it awful. It is something that sticks with you. And it's going to stick with Ben as well. This is something that he's going to go, you know, uh, the smoke monster is going to play it again in his mind in season five. This is going to be his sticking point in the sideways universe in season six is the whole Dr. Linus of it all, that this is his unfinished business. This is the thing, the moment that is going to make Benjamin Linus who he is for the rest of Lost. And it is a stark moment that I'm assuming every time Ben closes those bug eyes of his, he's going to keep replaying it. It's it's really wild because like on the show, people like have to like they they die and then they reconnect in the sideways. And that's what activates them and wakes them up for that final stage. And like for Ben, it's sort of like that moment happens in life for him here. Where, like, this happens and the rest of his life is sort of like this wide-eyed uh, horror show where he made, he he had, like, rarely miscalculated in his mind. I always have a plan. And he got this one so, so wrong mm-hmm. that it ruined actually everything for him. Uh, and, like, this is, like, the moment where, like, uh, we were waiting for you. <laughs> you know, like this is sort of the wake up for him in this really terrible way. Um, you know, the rest of his life is like this unflinching look back at like not a day passes where he doesn't see exactly what he sees in that moment. And like, I do think again, the show wisely more or less letting us register what that looks like for him on him, you know, like his yeah. face. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it really is symbolic as well in so many ways because this is just, it's a flagrant call to everyone on the show as well and everyone in the audience, just how dangerous these people are. That up until this point, Benjamin Linus was the, the video game boss, right? To go back to the RPG example. But in classic video game fashion, there was a boss that was even worse than that boss. That it that it defeated the boss and killed the boss's kid and outsmarted him. And it just shows how out of their league uh, Kimi and the Mercs are, at least in this moment, before they're able to sort of, you know, uh, re-engage themselves in time for the finale. They were able to defeat, up until this point, the most powerful person on Lost. That absolutely says something and and so it's it's just it's such a a turning point for the character of ben linus and arguably the show as well because you know we we saw this to to an extent with carl and rousseau and we talked about maybe the pros and cons of doing it so shockingly but i think this is one of the most brutal deaths the show has done and it really i think sends up a signal to the audience. Of, it has yes. that reputation and it's very well earned. Yeah. And, and I think it sends up a signal though, to the audience of like, look, yes, 
This is Alex Russo. She's not exactly a well-beloved member of the cast in season one. Not in, like, the same way, but, like, she's, I mean, I don't know, like, Alex has been a mythological piece, if you want to, like, you know, take away some personification, like, if you want to take away some identity, like, she's been a piece of the mythology since almost the beginning, and then we got to know her on top of that, and she's, like, been clutch, like, she saved Claire, uh, you know, she saved Kate and Kate Sawyer. And Sawyer. Yeah, and you know, but she's that, been clutch. She's been she's been the one who has sassed the shit out of Ben, and now she's gone. Yeah, and it's telling the audience, look out! Everyone who gets killed is not going to be Charlie. We're not going to throw a big parade or even do a Nikki and Paolo haha episode to send them off. Sometimes the characters you like are just going to go out in the middle of someone's sentence. Good luck yeah. with that, Losties. Yeah, not even like I mean, like I've talked about how like what happens to Faraday is so dark. Uh, I know we like disagree a little bit on the definition, but at least like it to me, like it is. No, it's it's I, dark. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really dark, and it's really, really, really tragic. But it's also like there's like some sort of cosmic faded thing about it. With what happens to Alex, this is a random act of violence, basically. Yeah, you and, know, she was, and she was caught in the crossfire. Wrong place, wrong time, and just shot for it. Uh, you know, this wasn't like she was on some sort of destiny wheel, this loop, this time travel thing, you know, which is awful in its own right. But at least Faraday kind of gets to acknowledge that as he's passing, right? I'm your son. Like, I think like it's connecting. You always knew. There's no sense to be made of this. It's no. senseless. It's pure senselessness. And so it's really, really upsetting. Um, it's very evocative and, uh, and deeply unsettling and just really, really, really awful. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about it. I think rightfully so. It's a huge, huge moment for the show. It's Alex. You know, we, we were with Rousseau looking for her for so much of the show. And then we found her and then they killed her. They shot her randomly in the middle of the barracks. Yeah. And so we have been marinating in this much like Ben is. I mean, again, we can also not overstate the fact that again, Benjamin Linus is someone who seems to be no matter what sense of danger he's in, he's always quick with a retort, always quick with, with a comeback or with a plan of how to fix things. But into the act break and out of the act break, and we'll get into this with our next sound, Ben is speechless. He is stuck, staring out the window at his daughter's lifeless body that he essentially killed, as Charles Winmore will will insinuate later on. And a million things are playing through in his head. And for once, Ben is almost non-existent in this plane of space. This is a guy who has his mind divided so many different places all the time, considering how wide the other operation spans. But here he is singularly concentrated on this one thing, and it completely pulls him out of everything, too. As we get into sound number four here, and we get into the aftermath and that infamous sentence, as you said before, Josh, everyone else is moving into motion to try to figure out what to do next. But Ben is stoic like a four-toed statue. I don't see him. He just left her body there and disappeared into the jungle. They won't be gone for long. It's going to be dark in about 20 minutes, and then they're going to come for him. Now let's just hand him over. I don't think these people have any intentions of letting us walk out of here alive, James. No matter what we do. Well, I ain't got no intention of dying. He changed the rules. 
What? Who? What rules? chance here is to toss him out and fend for ourselves. What a great scene. Oh my god, it just plays so well. The audio doesn't necessarily cover for it, but basically Ben sort of gets struck by a moment of inspiration. I love Michael Emerson's rating on He Changed the Rules. It almost seems yeah. catatonic, like yes. he's just in a different space, yes. but then he immediately snaps back to action. He gets up, runs into the secret compartment that Saeed found before, discovers that there is a box within a box and that he finds that there's a secret elevator seemingly or some sort of compartment Within the secret compartment, it has hieroglyphs on it. I believe someone translated those hieroglyphs to mean loosely uh, to summon protection, which Mm -hmm. makes sense given what Ben is about to do. And he disappears for a good portion of time. Yeah, yeah. And Sawyer's just like, where are you going? (laughs) I love that. I love the way that like Sawyer's ready to just throw him all the way out. Uh, Ben's got other plans. Sawyer has a fun interaction with this episode because there's so much of him just like, beleaguerdly reacting to things. We heard a little bit before with like, you know, who the hell's Charles Winmore. Basically, Ben and Locke are throwing out all of these mythology circumstances and, you know, pieces of um of exposition. And so it's like, what the hell? What what's going on? Who the hell is this person? Why yeah. is this happening? Is nobody telling me anything at this point? John, we yeah. and I had a nice conversation a few episodes ago. What happened to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he's, and it is just also like a testament to, uh, to, um, to, to Ben that like this has happened and he, he just pivots in this way. Uh, he like, he reacts to what's happened. He like takes it and then he immediately steps into action. Like he goes from like, he, he does not process the grief yet. A little bit of that comes later. Right. Um, for now, he goes from like shock and horror to rage, uh, yeah. ready to do what must be done to get them all out of this situation. Because like she could, she can't have died for nothing. Exactly. Like, listen, if there's something she would have wanted me to do is to get out of here and make sure that everyone else does as well. So I, I have to escape with my life, and we'll find out that obviously Ben went down there to, as he believes summon the smoke monster, you know, drain the water in the pool. But I, he'll sort of come to the conclusion in season six, right, in the penultimate episode, that uh, he said, it's, it's where I was told I could summon the monster. That's before I realized that it was the one summon- summoning me. So mm-hmm. in this instance, I think he believes that he's calling upon the monster to help him out, when really the monster has been there the entire time, just waiting to be utilized. Yeah, and less that he's, like, been there the entire time and more like, uh, like he's not like the mindless weapon that Ben probably like. Exactly. Minds it's, like, it's, him it's, as, yeah. it's it's less of a of a yeah like an inanimate weapon and more of like an ally. You know, more of a living being that has its not own even. I mean, this limbs. is the manipulator. You know, uh, that that Ben's like this is like sort of like the the enabler. 
the monster, mm. right? It's sort of like feeding into Benjamin's dark instincts. It's like, oh, you need a buddy to murder some people right now? Yeah, here's my card. Uh, like, it's dark. It's dark. Like, this is like, uh, this is like the guy who knows that you are uh, like trying to quit something and they're mm. just like, well, no, well, how about one more? Like, you know, this is like sort of like Dave with Hurley almost. Well, I think to that point, the smoke monster is Ben's assassin, yeah. right? He's he's someone who, much like Saeed, Ben is going to try to recruit to kill on behalf of him. It's just in this case, Ben does not realize that he is the one sort of being manipulated into hiring the assassin by the assassin proper. Smoke Monster's totally, by the way, like just in the tree line watching, re- like veritably eating popcorn. Oh, absolutely. Being like, oh, this, this, this is, is delicious. This is mass chaos. We've talked so much about how the Smoke Monster believes that chaos is a ladder that will eventually get him off the island. And as much as he has sort of whims about, okay, we want to make sure that, you know, the, the, these mercs come on and kill as many candidates as possible maybe helping Ben wouldn't necessarily help that. I think at this point, he just wants the war to keep going and hope that by the end of it, it's going to be ground zero and everyone's eliminated. Yes, I think that that's correct. I think that that's correct. All right, flash forward. We are going to see uh, Ben is is stalking Nadia's killer. There's going to be a little bit of a chase. Ben's going to corner him. Why are you following me? My name is Benjamin Linus. Need you to take a message to Charles Whitmore. What's the message? And the message is like nine to ten silenced bullets to the back. (laughs) No, I don't know. I mean, I guess the question is, was Ben actually going to tell him what he's going to tell Whitmore? Or was it more so he was sort of like the bait? It's an announcement. It's an announcement. I'm here. Your friends are not safe. You know, I think that is very much what he's doing here. That should do it. Wait! Where do you think you're going? We're finished here, Saeed. Turn around and walk away. Mourn your loss. Get on with your life. I have no life. They took it from me. Go home, Saeed. Once you let your grief become anger, it will never go away. I speak from experience. This is my war. It's not yours. I spent the last eight years of my life searching for the woman I love. I finally found her and I married her. And I buried her yesterday. So don't tell me this is not my war. Next, I'll be in touch. The Saeed motif is just so good. You yeah, hear it through, so both, through both of these. The bum bum bum. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, but so this is, you know, obviously how we get to things in the Economist. But it's so interesting to see Ben's procedure of going after Widmore is essentially to make a symmetrical tactic, essentially to fight fire with fire. Hey, Widmore hired an ex-military guy to serve as his assassin and kill Ben's daughter. 
Ben is going to hire an ex-military guy to kill people and possibly Widmore's daughter. Ben is essentially saying, look, this is what you did to ruin my life. I'm going to reproduce the exact same circumstances to ruin yours, buddy. Yorp. Yep, yep, yep. So it's all very dark. Very, 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 very dark. Um, and it's, I mean, it's it's a really big scene as well, too, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, I, I, like we talked about, even though Ben might be doing some manipulation here, again, some reverse psychology by saying, Sayyid, you want no part of this. You have a life. Go home. I do think when he says, you know, that when you use someone like this, when you want revenge, when you're, you're once you let your grief become anger, it will never go away. I think that's speaking from a piece of truth. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it's like the best lies are born from truth. Like he's able yeah. to do this because he knows. And because he's been struck, uh, you know, he's been uh, struck so low. He has no there is no bottom or he's reached it and if and if there is more bottom then how much worse can it get and so like he's willing to weaponize this grief i will um, also say all the naughty stuff i know we've been flipping and flopping back and forth about this but now hearing all the naughty stuff i'm back on team why shannon in the church at the end of the series yeah <gasps> you know but you know what i so uh while we were recording got a piece of feedback from mary uh who wrote in and said i was listening to your podcast the other day and you talked about sawyer and kate must have not gotten together after they left the islands it's kate waited for jack and sawyer but the other interesting thing is they were probably in like their early 30s when they left the island. So if they lived until like 70, you'd think they would have married someone and had kids and grandkids. Why wouldn't they want to be with that person in the church? So like, I think like you just got to like, it's like the version of them that were on the island, right? Like, I think it's just the versions of them that were on the island that are moving on. Mm, we contain not, multitudes and other pieces of us move on in different places. I don't know, Mike, whatever. <laughs> maybe Nani is represented it. like maybe if you squint really hard, like the ghost in the back of three men and a baby, you could see Nadia in the stained glass of the window. So she did move on with all of them. It's just more of a thruple situation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to go there. It's yet. Just, it's we just don't have to get hearing there about yet. all that Nadia <laughs> stuff and seeing how like just utterly heartbroken sight is that you, you just get reminded, unfortunately. But I, totally. I feel like I'm going to flip-flop about it again by the time we get to the end of season oh, six. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Alright, back at the barracks. Claire's awake. She's like, hey, I didn't miss anything. It's like, yeah, a lot, actually. Yeah, and so it's like, oh, I just took a nap back there. But anything, I'll be alright. And everyone's like, you sure? We might all be killed here momentarily. And so Ben emerges covered in shit. He shows back <laughs> up. He's just dirt, dirt, dirt. Uh, he says, alright, uh, in, in in exactly a minute, we're gonna need to uh, to to run towards that tree line. Who is like, wait, towards the people with the guns? Like, no, nope, far uh, away not, from them. Yeah, they will not be there. I love the framing of Ben giving these marching orders with the picture of Alex behind him. Right, it's this reminder of how this is literally lingering in his head and serving as a reminder. I'm assuming Ben also might want a GTFO because this probably has too many bad memories associated with it yeah. now. And so this is like the final farewell to the barracks uh, for the time being. And so as they make the way for the tree line, we get a delicious soundscape, Josh, where it is the monster noises that we know and love combined with gunfire and the screams, the terrified yelps of these mercs it really reminds me of like the end of the first act of the pilot right when like we didn't see anything we just heard trees being rustled up and everyone gathers as they hear just these freaky deaky mysterious otherworldly noises we get it here right we see the smoke 
ebb and flow outside of the tree line, but it really is mostly audio. And it's one of those things where any image you can draw in your mind is going to be much darker and scarier than anything they could have put on screen. Yeah, but it also is like the first time you're, uh, many of these characters are seeing this thing that they've heard in action, or at least in action killing people <laughs> yeah. you know? so like sort of the savagery of it is is like new to them so uh it's 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 pretty wild uh so they go and they run and everyone leaves uh and uh ben needs a minute he needs i need to say goodbye to my daughter and so he walks over mike and again, to uh to to meet alex russo uh one last time I meant M-E-E-T. I don't know what you were saying. Uh, these damn homonyms. I feel like I'm in an episode of 30 Rock. Uh, the the soundscape, again, the, the use of sound mixing is really great here, too. Where, again, that just chaotic, brutal soundscape of the monster attacking people fades away. And that piano music comes back. And it's hauntingly beautiful because it's a reverie right it's it's this uh much like westworld it's this memory that ben has of even like a short time ago when things were okay when it was the calm before the storm when he was just playing piano it's all come back now and ben tunes out the rest of the world to mourn alex this is by far the saddest we've ever seen benjamin linus maybe benjamin baby benjamin linus when he tries to run away into the jungle is pretty sad but this is the most heartbroken we've seen michael emerson like he is crying over her body he is cradling his dead daughter in his arms he is kissing her head and you can tell josh because again this is in private no one is watching in on him that like this is truly how benjamin linus feels that he put on the mask the masks hanging on his walls for one quick second to say all right gotta get back in gear and dispatch with these mercs so that we can all make a great escape. But then once all that drops and he lets the emotions come back in, he really he, yeah, it's he, all, he mourns it's his awful. loss. He mourns his loss. And it is it is a an incredible look at the character, but a just a it's br- it's brutal. brutal one at the same time. Uh let's go back to the beach. Uh poor Daniel Faraday is gonna have a pretty brutal time himself. Uh let's let's you pulled the sound. Let's listen in. believe it. Might actually have a signal. What are you sending? What happened to the doctor? Okay. They didn't exactly say what happened to the doctor, but friends are fine and the helicopter's coming back in in the morning. Well, he's lying. What the message said was, what are you talking about? The doctor is fine. You know more is cold. What does that mean? The doctor 
is fine. I don't know. Why are you lying? Why did you say that the helicopters are coming back? Jack! Were you ever going to take us off this island? for jack either uh not, yeah. not, 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 not good luck in terms of like uh getting caught out not a literal good look in that jack is just sweating up a storm he looks bad we'll get into it next week I, again i'm i'm not ready to talk about the appendicitis yet i need to think no no we, we, need, we need a second to sort of to ruminate i need to on think that. it starts here it starts here it starts here it's fine um we'll get there next week maybe there's some some good there i know that there's some arguments in favor um so i'm curious to 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 sift through all of that um but yeah, this is bad news. It's just bad news. And and I think like the the salient point here is this is Jack realizing shit. Oh no. So yeah, this like sort of laser focus we're getting off the island, the boats come in, we're rescued is yet another after all this time. Just another like he needs it thorn in the side. Yeah, uh, not a thorn in his digestive system, but and it's also a symbol to him as well of like you opened up your trust to these people. You opened up your trust to John Locke. Look what happened. You opened up your trust to to Daniel and Charlotte. Look what happened. It's like a, a huge point of reckoning for Jack as well. And Faraday, it's really the situation right where it's almost a sitcom type of trope where you you make one lie and then for some reason throughout the entire episode the lie just keeps building more and more and more where it's oh yeah you know oh i can't do anything because the sat phone's broken but why don't you use it to morse code to communicate yeah okay sure great oh this is oh this is awesome good good thinking guys oh but you know what they said the doctor uh they don't know what happened but everything's hunky-dory and the helicopter's coming back nope no, that's not true. Are you even coming to get us and rescue us? No, it's it's you know it's it's a they they really are cornered. And despite them being a bit wily and trying to help people, Daniel especially with Desmond a few episodes ago, that olive branch has burned up at this point. With them vocally confirming, yes, we did tell you that rescue you wasn't our primary objective, but it wanted to be an objective. But here they're outright saying. Yeah, that might not happen. Uh, that's and it, not exactly what we're doing. And it's scary, here. yeah, because it's now it's coming from both angles, right? Like you said at the very beginning of this podcast, there is no escape. Even the people that they welcomed in with open arms that they thought were there to help them, even if it was different from Kimi, are still not there to help them. And so they feel more alone than they've ever been, despite the fact that the cast is the largest it really has been. Yeah. Um, yeah, it ain't good. All right. Um, we're getting close to the end here. There's a lot of the sounds in the back half because the back half is just insane. Um, let's, this is, uh, Locke is, is used to this at this point. Groups splitting around him. Mm-hmm. It, there's going to be another split here and it's going to get pretty hairy pretty quick. Sorry about your daughter. Thank you, John. That being said, you lied to me. 
You told me you didn't know what the smoke monster was. You can ask Jacob all about it when we go to the cabin. Hang on. Jacob? Who else Jacob? He's the man that's going to tell us what to do next, Jane. You know what? I'm done with all this. Never should have followed you wackos in the first place. I'm going back to the beach and Claire and the kid are coming with me. You good with that? Yeah, I'm good with that. I'm coming with you. Let's go. You too, Harley. Have you lost your mind? Hugo stays with us. Not a chance. Wait, leave me out of there. I'm sorry, Hugo. We need you to find the cabin. He ain't going anywhere with you, you crazy son of a bitch. Stop! Put the guns down. I'll go with Long. Hugo, it's okay, Sawyer. Please, put your gun down. You too. You don't have to do this. You guys go back to the beach. I'll catch up sooner or later. You harm so much as one hair on his curly head? I'll kill you. Fair enough. something that's a little bad uh but you know i'm i'm happy that aaron gets to grow up very soon with the time jump three years forward selfishly because every time i hear him cry i am instinctually like looking at a baby monitor i know or leaning at the, like, oh my god yeah. is my son crying like what did i do what do i have to do now and it's like oh no okay it's just the baby using locally sourced sounds it's okay they just went into the garage band and brought the 99 cents baby crying sound that they use in all the tv shows and used it here i mean this is this is a big thing at the beginning at the end of the beginning of the end the group split in twain between jack and Locke, but now Locke's group is split apart once again i mean actually most of them are dead but the rest of them have now split apart and that sawyer has finally said like enough is enough we're going back to the beach. We're not going on any more crazy Jacob adventures. We nearly died here. And the final lines of this scene are so indicative. Which way? Follow me. Josh, John Locke has lost any leadership he came into season four with. Any sort of like head honcho, everyone lean on me. He has now abdicated everything over to Ben, the man that he had tied up at his mercy, dragging behind him. To now not only release him, but have him guide the way to move forward and figure out what to do next. He pulls a gun on Sawyer for, like, no reason. To go six to midnight here like that makes no sense. I think John is seriously frazzled by what happened here. Probably even more so than Ben, because Ben at least, again, saw it coming. I think John is, he thought he was avoiding this, again, by creating this own group. 
they still came to his door and knocked it down. And so I, I think he's just like legitimately grasping at straws at this point. And so if Ben says Hurley has to come with us, then he'll say, yeah, okay, if that, if that, sure. Sorry, Sawyer, I'm going to shoot you if you don't give Hurley over. And I guess a great touchstone in the ever-growing, ever-lovable Sawyer-Hurley relationship, where Sawyer basically threatens to kill Locke if he ever harms Hurley. He even calls him Hurley here. It's just another great step in their relationship that's been building throughout Season 3. Calls him Hugo. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Like, the nickname is gone. This is Hugo Reyes. You know, this is his good friend. This is his guy. Uh, And Hurley, on his journey towards becoming the new man in charge, is like, put the guns down. Like, you're not shooting each other over me. I'll go with Locke because that's the only person who's not going to sensibly walk down from this. Sawyer, you go to the beach. I'll catch up. I got yeah, this. Yeah, I'll catch up sooner or later. He's putting a. I mean, it's interesting because he's putting a lot of faith in himself. And I think that also shows a lot of growth in Hurley as well, right? When he came to the island, he was so down on himself with everything that happened with the lottery, believing he was cursed and his life was just besodden with all of this misfortune. He has gained so much confidence in himself. He really has lived his life on the island by the mantra of make your own luck. So yeah, hell yeah, if he ends up finding his way alone, he'll be able to make his way back to the beach eventually. He survived much worse here on Lost. He could absolutely be able to straddle both parties here, guide them to the jungle, then make their way back, and then he'll make take a nice little chopper ride off the island in a little bit. Um, all right, well, let's leave the island one last time, and let's close out the episode in London, England. Feed my fish, not too much. We're going to London, England. So and we I go believe, to London. And I believe this is the first time that they have filmed outside of Hawaii. They had to film in, uh, in London. I believe that's the reported story, yes. And yeah, they, outside, because outside the, Alan, Dale, uh, yeah, Alan outside- Dale is is uh, is performing on stage, so they need to go to him. Yeah, I should clarify, outside of the United States. They, I think they, they filmed, obviously, some of the Through the Looking Glass stuff in Los Angeles. But this is where they went outside of America itself, because Allendale was in Spamalot at the time. So he couldn't really take a trip over to Hawaii. So they stopped by his place across the pond, not across the sea. And Ben is going to initially make a drop-in visit, visiting who? Um, Mr. and Mrs. Anna Kendrick, I believe, is is the fake name. He ends up hacking into the elevator to go all the way up to the penthouse suite. You wonder. I love Who's-? how he has like the baton ready to go in case he needs it. He yeah, doesn't like, need all right, it. I'm going to beat this poor hotel toady just in case I need <laughs> to. But he ends up being fine. And you wonder who's Ben visiting at this hour? Could this be another Tom friendly, nice hotel situation? No, no, no. He walks in on a sleeping Charles Widmore. And here we have finally these two guys sharing their first, but certainly not the last scene together. Wake up, Charles. I wondered when you were going to show up. I see you've been getting more sun. Iraq is lovely this time of year. When did you start sleeping with a bottle of scotch by the bed? When the nightmare started. Have you come here to kill me, Benjamin? We both know I can't do that. Then why are you here? I'm 
here, Charles, because you murdered my daughter. Don't stand there looking at me with those horrible eyes of yours and lay the blame for the death of that poor girl on me. When we both know very well I didn't murder her at all, Benjamin. You did. No, that's not true. Yes, Benjamin, it is. You creep into my bedroom in the dead of night, like a rat. You have the audacity to pretend that you're the victim. I know who you are, boy. What you are. I know that everything you have, you took from me. So, once again I ask you, why are you here? I'm here, Charles, to tell you that I'm going to kill your daughter. Penelope, is it? And once she's gone, once she's dead, then you'll understand how I feel. And you'll wish you hadn't changed the rules. Island's mine, Benjamin. It always was. It will be again. But she'll never find it. Then I suppose the hunt is on for both of us. I suppose it is. Sleep tight, Charles. So it's like it's the anti-constant because like the end of the constant is a really lovely thing about Penny and this is a really uncool thing about Penny. Yeah, because the assumption is I, I mean, love look, you, Penny versus I'm going to kill Penny. The assumption is that he's going to go through with it because we just saw hell if the show can break up Saeed and Nadia. If the show can shoot Alex in the head in the middle of the episode, yeah. hell yeah, they can kill off. No Penny reason because, to believe he won't do it. <laughs> yeah, because Desmond doesn't deserve anything, right? He's, he's always going to be an un- unlucky bastard. Yeah. I love this scene so much because we finally get an answer here. Because up to this point, neither Charles Wedmore nor Benjamin Linus had made any sort of reference. They made references to each other, but not to the fact that they knew each other. Yeah. And this, I think, changes the game. In a number of ways, because it's it's different when this implied, not even implied, this this uh, this history that's very very present in the room between yeah. these two men. It's personal. It really, despite the fact that the rules apparently don't get personal with families involved, these are two men who know each other. You know, Charles insinuates you got everything from me, basically, which then sets a lot of people's questions in their head concerning what we found out from the man behind the curtain of okay. So Charles Winmore actually does have involvement in the island. There was a lot of talk, remember, in previous episodes about like, oh, Charles Winmore wants to find the island to turn it into a tourist trap. No, no, no. Charles Winmore has a history with the island as well. And that, again, goes back to this idea of how many people are connected with it, that once you leave it, it never leaves your DNA. It is just a, a seismic shift in our understanding of the character up to this point. There's also, you know, a loose reference to the idea of 
I think they allude to it here, though I think it gets more explicitly mentioned later on, that much like we found out last week with Michael being unable to kill himself, I do believe there is sort of a thing where, like, Ben and Widmore can't really kill each other, that the island, I think, for some reason, is keeping them alive, and then they decide to agree to this other set of rules uh, that's sort of separate from the the Jacob of it all. So that's that's an interesting development as well, again, especially in connection with the previous episode. I didn't notice it until this time, Josh, but if not only do we get the return of the McCutcheon whiskey, but if you look on the back wall of Charles Widmore's bedroom, you see a painting from the Black Rock, which was seen in the constant. So, uh, uh, you know, Charles Woodward got that ledger, took a big old hearty piss, left the water (laughs) running, and then got that painting. Wow. Yeah. It's a great scene. Uh, I wish that the the follow-through with these characters was a little better than it ends up being, but it's still like... I don't know. It's it's this is sort of like uh, some like proto Jacob Man in Black stuff. Yeah, you know, this is a recurring. You know, this is a runner throughout Lost of like people on opposite sides of the chessboard, and so it's it's cool to get that for for Ben, especially because like think like Locke looks at Ben that way for himself, and this sort of just like underlines that. Ben doesn't think about Locke in this way. No, Ben's got he, bigger fish to fry. He's a small potato compared to like the giant tater that is Charles Winmore. And I love the fact that, again, as we've talked about, this incident has changed Ben so much. Remember, Ben last episode claims, oh, Michael, the only difference between Charles Winmore and me is he would do anything. He'd kill innocent people to get what he wants. I don't do that. What does Ben do? Walk in here and say, I'm going to kill an innocent person because of what happened to my daughter. Like, he has clearly broken his own code here, however hypocritical it may have been last episode. I love, again, Michael Emerson just putting in a tour de force performance. His voice takes a noticeable change. You know, he he's, I think, actually pretty subtle, like almost sotto voce when he's talking to Charles Winmore initially, almost like not to wake him up particularly or maybe not to disturb the neighbors. But when he says, I will kill your daughter, Penelope was it. Like, his voice gets cold. It has certainty behind it. He means every he means every sense of the word because he's actually going to try to go through with it uh were desmond not in the way and again i keep saying how this is the shape of things to come in the future and winmore literally saying i suppose the hunt is on for both of us i mean that's season five josh is it not it really yeah. is like ben is in a rush now to get back to the island because he knows that he is in competition with charles winmore to get back there and so that's really going to set up ben to just hurdle forward with trying to get all these people back together and get back to that island that he exiled himself from at the very beginning here. So this episode is a really easy 4.2 for me. I know it is for you as well, Mike. Um, It's a 3.8 from the audience, which was surprising to me that there are people who are like a little bit lower on this one. I thought, I guess I always just sort of figured that the consensus on this is like slam dunk, lights out kind of episode we'll we'll see because uh you know i think the unfortunate side of our new recording schedule which is us sort of recording these nine days aka like two episodes ahead of time is that i know some people like to watch the episode before the podcast is released for that week could change could shift i think i i think there's a good chance that we'll get a more of a a flood of four points i'd like to put my my thumb on the scale and say well this should shift this is a really good episode it's the second best of season four according to the rankings so far which is absolutely as it should be it's closer than i like it's closer than i like uh, it's 4.09 for the episode above the beginning of the end, which is a 4.02. I love the beginning of the end. Don't get me wrong. I gave that a 4.2. Uh, but I do think, like, is there a superior episode between those two? 
My answer is yes, and we just talked about it. Yeah, I mean, The Shape of Things to Come is a next-level episode. Like, the beginning of the end, I can certainly call a very good, if not perfect, episode of Lost. The Shape of Things to Come is just, like, one of those inimitable episodes. It has always been one of my favorite episodes of the show, period. And watching this back, it is no different. There are minor things to quibble with, but my god, does the good outweigh the bad here. There's, It's just absolutely incredible. It really is a tone and pace shifter, as you mentioned, for the rest of the show, and is such a landmark, especially when, again, the first half of this season had some really fast-paced, interesting stuff going on. But I think The Shape of Things to Come is a clear landmark of what Lost is in its second half. Where, you know, a season by the time season six is happening, thing people are getting blown up and Desmond's getting uh, immersed in electromagnetic radiation again. And there's just so much high flying pulse pounding stunts in the second half of the series that the shape of things to come is really like a team captain in that regard. Uh, let's get into some feedback. Dallin Servo asks, is Alex's death Ben's biggest miscalculation of the series? Yes, you have to imagine so. Mm, Yeah, I think, but also maybe killing Jacob was bad. Yeah, I mean, I I do wonder, though... uh, That that one sort of has, like, uh, global death ramifications, Yeah, but but, but I wouldn't call that a miscalculation more as, like, a mistake. A miscalculation is really this moment, right, where he says, I know Kimi's going to do this, so I'm going to do that. He wasn't necessarily saying... Well, I know if I just stab Jacob, you know, it'll be sure. fine. I think that was more so him acting out of emotional impulse. This feels a little bit different in that he makes a tactical error right here. Obstinensky asks, do we ever learn why Ben can't kill Widmore? I don't think we do. Are these the same rules as Jacob and the man in black? My assumption is... It's, again, going back to Michael. I wonder if it's just a matter of the island's not done with them, or they have some sort of connection to the island. Uh, Maybe they drank some of the Jacob juice and, like, have some sort of connection there that they can't be killed unless the island allows them to be. And then for one reason or another, maybe keeping the great karmic balance of it all, or maybe Charles Wilmore has to be alive so that Penny can still be in the picture, so that Desmond can fall in love with Penny, and so Charles Wilmore is, like, a necessary part of the equation. But I do, I personally believe that there is some portion of the island that looms over these guys' lives that says, all right, as much as they might be thorns in your sides, they have to stay alive at the moment. But their families are fair game. A uh, couple of glowing reviews from the great Eric Divesign, who did wish me a happy birthday, I gotta oh, say. Good. And then I trashed him in two consecutive episodes of a podcast. This is the Mia Culpa. It was a joke. The whole thing was a joke just felt funny to say Eric Divestein was the one who dissed me on my birthday, but of course he didn't. Eric is a treasure. Yes. But you, but you out there, and you know I'm talking to you, you didn't wish me a happy birthday, did you? Hmm. <laughs> I remember that, uh, and I'll never forget it. Eric says, this is such a pivotal episode, not just for the story, but for the show in general. Coming out with this really bold and exciting episode right after the writer's strike really dispelled any disappointment over the season being abruptly shortened and delivered a statement that they were going to make the most of the remaining episodes mm-hmm. of the season. That's another piece of this, Mike, that I don't think we really talked about. We talked about how it's like it explodes out of the writer's strike. But it's also like at this point, you you knew as a viewer like Lost was going to make it to 16 episodes per season at this point, And now that wasn't going to be the case for season four. And it was like, damn it. 
but the show is going to end in a couple of seasons. So we're being robbed of a couple of episodes. And this episode really is like, don't worry, we'll make it count. Yep, exactly. Don't worry. You're in good hands. We might have less runway, but we're going to take the plane off. But it we're, just building it. we're building it. We're building it. Um, and then let's throw it to Riley to close us out of the feedback. Riley says it's a 4.2. It's one of my favorite episodes of Lost ever. Just feels like a game changer. I remember watching the scene with Alex thinking there's no way they could kill her off like this just after killing Rousseau. And then they do it. It's brutal, intense, thrilling, heart wrenching, a gut punch, but it makes total sense. There's no other way this situation plays out. The tragedy of it all is that once the situation began, there was no going back. We also here have the birth of Kimi as one of the best terrible villains ever. He's so evil. He plays it so well. Mm -hmm. The flash forwards maybe have never been better than these flash forwards and the Ben and Widmore scene is iconic. One of my favorite ever dialogue conversation scenes. These are the smoke monsters. Incredible. We have an amazing hero Sawyer moment. The pace ratchets up to 11. How is this episode not perfect? I mean, listen, uh, you're preaching in the you're choir preaching here, the choir. Riley. Preaching in the choir. Um, well, Riley mentions Kimi. I think that takes us very nicely into the MVP LVPs. Mike, I believe you're giving Kimi an MVP. Kimi! Kimi! Yes, I am uh, bringing back the Josh Wiggler-esque, let's give a, a, a MVP point to someone who does an objectively bad thing in an episode, uh, the Ethan Rom Memorial Reward, if you will. Because, yeah, here's the thing. Like, Kibi is a terrible person and finally shows his true colors. But, A, Kevin Durant does such a good job at it. And, B, like, he kills Alex. I, I kind of want to give him kudos for, like, actually going through with it and pulling the trigger for calling Ben's BS and just, like, shutting him up for a good portion of time. Yes, it does end up... Uh, you know, dude, at the cost of many of his men, and Ben is going to kill him later in retribution. But in the moment, Kimi's kind of the winner right now. And so I, I want to give him a point for it. I don't know how controversial it's going to be. I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks when this podcast drops. But I want to give some Kimi kudos in this episode. I'm fine with that. I think that works. I mean, I did question the tactics, but I won't, I won't pull on the thread too much. Uh, I've given, uh, I've given bad guys points for less, for sure. Um, giving Ben the point, I talked myself into it. Um, mm. I have I have two points to give. They were initially for Sawyer and Hurley. Uh, Hurley for the big leadership moment that he expresses in this episode, and Sawyer for like risking life and limb to save Claire, uh, and also because it's very comical that he can't save the Gawkers. Um, and also, it's really cool that he sticks up for his friend with Hugo. So I was trying to determine which one was going to not get the MVP point because I had talked myself into giving Ben a point. And I'm not backing down from that, even though I know you're going to give him an LVP, right? Yeah, I'm going to give him an LVP because, I mean, he does let Alex die. <laughs> he does let Alex die. <laughs> it's washed. That's fine. He does make, as we talked about yeah. in, in the feedback, the biggest miscalculation in his lost career. So, like, I feel like that he's he can't escape with all. I mean, he can't escape without an LVP point here. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, I totally get it. So I've got two um, more MVP points. Uh, I chose Sawyer. Sawyer, I'm keeping with the MVP point is the point. Yeah. So Sawyer and Ben are, are getting them for Josh. So I have two more. I'm going to give one to Bernard because Bernard sort of takes the Saeed role here as the human lie detector. And, it, you know, I is able to come in super clutch. It's been actually a pretty couple of good episodes for Bernard in season four. Bernard might stealthily become the MVP of season four. Just Surprise, because of, bitch. I bet you didn't think I knew Morse code, did you? 
Exactly. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, Bernard has had a couple of good episodes. And considering how thinly spread the points are, we'll see what happens as we're barreling down the end of season four. And I think, I don't know, I can't remember... Stefan Johnson, let me know if I ever gave points to the smoke monster before. This might this be the first. first? Wow. This might be the first, because I feel like you're the one that usually does the delineation of the smoke monster. But this is that's also with our interpretations, right? Of like, oh, yeah, that's the smoke monster. So therefore, we'll give him a point. He's the horse. He's a uh, Yemi, etc. I'm giving a point to the smoke monster here because, I mean, he cleans house. He uh, cleans out many of the houses of the barracks and that he just like kicks absolute ass and keeps the chaos pot is, uh, stirring. It's, so sad, think- it's sad that we're not giving Alex an MVP point in this episode. Um, it's a little hard to find the spot. I think that there's good arguments for, for everybody. Uh, I think you could take a bunch of these people off and give her the, give her the point, but um, I'm not doing it. But I'm also not giving her an LVP point. I'm not giving her a point Yay! for dying. You know? I am I am going to give Dr. Ray a preemptive LVP point for dying, and Dr. Ray will be the rare lost character who gets a point for dying twice. Oh, uh, interesting. So he's going to get one in Cabinet yeah, Favor as well? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% yes. For right, sure. So you've got... So I've got one more LVP point. I mentioned it before. I'm giving it to Daniel Faraday. Uh, he, he had a good moment a couple episodes ago preventing the, the toxic gas, but here he really gets caught flat-footed. Charlotte at least is smart and, like, shuts her mouth this entire episode. Faraday just keeps flapping his gums and gets in more and more trouble as a result until he is just, like, neck-deep in quicksand. So not a yeah. great look for Daniel Faraday. His, his weakness is exposed right now. The Gawkers take a take a hit uh, it's, it's been both, a while both on the show and in this episode so yeah i'm gonna give the gawkers an lvp point and then i think i've already articulated some of my john Locke frustrations and i think he has a bad episode i don't i don't i don't particularly care for john Locke in this episode so uh i will i mean i love the performance i always yeah. love terry o'quinn uh but i think like is he pulling a gun on sawyer what's your problem man why aren't you letting sawyer in claire of all people <sighs> you ass so yeah john Locke who is now the LVP of season four, believe it or not. Uh, Congratulations. I mean, that's another thing as well. Like, I'm surprised that Charles Winmore, who we have given LVP points to, like, in abstentia in previous episodes, has escaped despite appearing in this episode. I think it's just due to, as you said, a lot of LVPs to go around, much like the MVPs. Uh, He and Miles are one point within reach of Locke, who you said is now holding down the fort with a negative five. Negative five, John lock and uh it's pretty spread out in the mvp no breakouts uh frank lapidus has been holding it down as the mvp leader all season long but saeed has been on his heels uh and there's a there's hurley faraday desmond claire's son Jin, even mr friendly bernard are all competitive i don't, I don't, so. know, I don't know mr friendly's getting it season i don't think four. so either but it's just like it's a it's a strange array of people who uh like it's not it's not a breakaway season for anybody. So Ooh, this is, you know what? This Josh, is live. I might put in a prediction here because I'm I'm remembering something nice back home as we segue into next week. There's a chance Bernard might get another MVP point next would, week. Bernard is like the surprise season four MVP would be hysterical and great. So that I'm, would be I'm incredible. In See, so yeah. we're getting to something nice back home, and it's obviously the question, much like we talked about with the other woman, of like, how do you follow up a monumental episode of Lost, like The Shape of Things to Come? So. I'm a season four lover, but I think if you told me, like, okay, here's a piece of paper, write down all the season four episodes, the one I would always forget about is something nice back home. Yeah. It's it's always that one that just, like, finds itself in kind of an awkward spot, 
right? We're getting a, a flash forward of Jack, even though we've had one. Though I am actually intrigued to get back into that because it's a very it's a look at a very different Jack. We finally get to see a Jack who was happy off island. And then we have the appendicitis stuff, uh, which a lot of people can take or leave. I'm really excited to just take a look at all this again, because to be candid, I never remember too much of this episode. Maybe I've been knocked out with my own form of chloroform every time I watch something nice back home. But I think it's going to be very intriguing to compare this not only with what came in the shape of things to come, but where we're going to keep going in Cabin Fever and then the three-part finale. All right, we're barreling towards it. So get your feedback in something nice back home. Get that feedback in by March 24th. You want to make sure that you're getting that stuff in nine days early. Uh, yeah. And uh, by us saying that, like at this point, it's too late. Like you're you're listening to this podcast as we've already recorded it. There's a time travel thing going on that's very appropriate. Yeah, like I said last podcast, in general, I think you want to... Nine record, days before. Nine days before, or just two episodes ahead of time. So yeah, right now, at the, if you're listening to this on the day it's coming out, s- watch Cabin Fever ASAP and send in your feedback. Just think two it's episodes ahead a, of time. It's why we have a season-ending feedback show. Everything's going to work out just fine. Uh, and you can always keep the conversation up with us over at the Patreon on the Discord patreon.com slash post show recap sign up join us in the discord we're having a blast we're just having such a good time we'd love to have you there to talk about the shape of things to come what are you waiting for hop on that horse say yeah sign up for the discord tally ho as we like to say uh or uh, we shall not tarry i believe is what or did i say we shall not tally? i think it's, I think it's pronounced dallin servo Yes, uh, so hop on that horse and come on down to the Discord. Send us your feedback down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Your ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated, but frankly, no longer needed. We're kind of set at this point. We're sort of established uh, this podcast at this point. I'm just kidding. We'll take them. <laughs> well, listen, we'll take, we'll take all you can get. We're nowhere as well off as Charles Winmore nor uh, Benjamin Linus. Please, uh, I just like please. to the flex. The flex was fun. Please, daddies uh, and mommies. <laughs> it was just fun to do. I enjoyed doing it um all right we'll be back next week with something nice back home until then everybody take care bye-bye Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.